I'm like a chameleon, which has been very, very good for business, but it's very confusing internally because I can sit with directors of companies in Tweed and speak like them, and I can sit with kingpins of the underworld and dress and talk like them, especially on social media. Like, I won't go too left, I won't go too right, because the moment I veer off, it affects ties with the council, affects ties with the authorities, affects ties with the events I'm putting on. They're not going to let me in those rooms if I don't position myself in a certain place. And some of that is unauthentic. Like six till nine or six till nine is where I actually do all my work. Because nine till five, I'm being pulled pillar to post from staff, for meetings, for coffees, which sounds really nice, right? Someone's got to do the work at some point. When I get here, I will be happy. When I get this car, when I get this job, when I get, it might be this partner, mm. that piece is dangerous. And I've been living like that for a decade. Is anyone good? No. Is any human good? Only one man was good. And his name was Jesus Christ. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Do you think you could run a nightclub out of a mosque? Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of the Extrospective Podcast with your host, Zach Villeneuve-Snell. Welcome to episode 50, where we invite serial entrepreneur and founder of Halo, Vantage Sports Group, Sandfest, G White, I Am UK Events, Rise, and many other businesses over the years, Ty Tamel. And so I invited him around my house to record a 4K HD podcast in my living room with a fantastic two hour long conversation, delving into his journey, his story, his mindset, some of his biggest challenges in businesses, his philosophies. And we actually have a half an hour discussion about theology and philosophy and understanding what it means to be a good person in light of all of the confusing wisdom in self-development that is out there today. And before we begin this episode, I wanted to take the opportunity to thank each and every one of you. Whether you've been tuning in since episode one or this is your first time listening to the podcast, thank you so much. I know we had a three-month hiatus from the podcast, but with Tom Bryant two weeks ago and this episode this week, we're back on it with a roll and I hope to keep marching forward into 2024 to continue pursuing my curiosity and bringing these learnings, these conversations into the public eye. So thank you so much for following and without further ado, welcome to the podcast. Titanel. What's up with the Titanel Nutella? Titanel Nutella? What was that, Al? Where have you seen that? <laughs> have I posted that? Yeah. It was a birthday present. <laughs> Why? Because I eat Nutella with a spoon. <laughs> what a start. What a start to the podcast. Mate, I, I'm just hooked on, I'm like a sugar addict. Mm. Like I love sugar. That's my kryptonite. It's not smoking, it's not drinks, it's not drugs. It's sugar, chocolate mainly, not even like sweets. Mm. But when I was young, I'd always eat Nutella with a spoon and it was always my, my, my thing. And then I can't remember what year it was, maybe five, six years ago, Claudia bought me a, my wife now bought me a Nutella with my name on it basically as a present. Okay. She was like, what did you get the guy that's got everything he ever wanted? And then bought me that. Mm. But that isn't your real name, is it? No. Why? It's not my, it's not my legal name. Why, why don't you go by Mustafa publicly? <laughs> Fuck, I didn't know you knew that. <laughs> Company's house, mate. Yeah. Um, big question. Okay. So both my granddad's first names are Mustafa. It's a very, very powerful name in Turkey. Um, it's got loads of religious ties to it as well. The guy that founded Turkey's first name was Mustafa. Um, I obviously came to England when I was two years old from Turkey. And when my parents gave me that name, they probably presumed I was always going to grow up in Turkey. So my first name was Mustafa, middle name was, how we pronounce it is Tylum, but in England they pronounce it Taylum, because it's got an A, 
and then to Mel. When we came here, because the name was a little bit religious and the area we were living in when I got a bit older was very white, very middle class, very affluent, I stopped using it and I started using Thailand as my kind of first name. And then when the teachers couldn't pronounce that in reception and stuff, uh, not reception, you know, what was the thing in the morning? You sit in assembly. Assembly, I'm talking to someone. <laughs> assembly. <laughs> when they couldn't pronounce it assembly, I shortened it to Thai. Yeah. Um, I just felt the name had a bit of a negative attachment to it of where I was. Not necessarily in London. When we were in London, it was sweet. Hmm. Um, but when we come down south, and we came all the way down south, we came to Swanage. Hmm. So it's like 11,000 people live there. It's God's waiting room. There was no Chinese takeaways, no Indian takeaways, no kebab shops, nothing when we moved there. We were the only people with brown skin and bushy eyebrows and like hairy arms. Hmm. Hmm. So just, yeah. I, I never removed it. My dad, he's so sound. He was like, look, go, go and remove it legally. Get it off. And I said, I'm not going to because it's both my grandparents' names. You've named me that. And really, no one needs to know. It's only a legality, isn't it? My driving license, passport. Yeah. finance documents but you can call yourself anything yeah i could reveal to you now that i have some random other name but i don't it's, you <laughs> oh, do no i don't yeah. <laughs> it'd be funny if i did though it's not um, also in turkey you've got this this thing in the culture so my two of my other cousins have got first names they don't use as well and it's nothing to do with the reason i don't use mine theirs is pronounceable it's read as it's um, written mm. you've got this like i don't know how to describe it becoming of a man kind of thing in, in, in our culture where when your father passes, whether that's physically passes or um, in theory, you know, in life, that he steps down and you, you become the head of the community. That's when you would take that first name mm. in a way. Mm. So you're your middle name because you're the boy still. And then when you become the man, you take the first name. I see. You see what I mean? So there's, yeah, there's that yeah, element yeah. of it as well. So like right now, we're probably in the last sort of two, three years, we're having that transition with my, with my father. He, he's kind of like, he now asks me for things. I don't ask him anymore. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I find that that dynamic, um, I, I don't necessarily see it with fatherhood. I mean, I'm not at that stage mm. in my, my life yet, but I definitely saw that. And I've mentioned it in previous podcasts about the transition of um, the relationship between me and my mum in terms of comforting say some neutral thing happens and at 16 my mum's kind of putting her arm around me and at 22 23 I think I'm you know I'm moving into me putting my arm around my mum you know and there's that natural shift of boy into man and I suppose mm -hmm. even more so with fatherhood and I think that kind of initiation and that kind of um growing up into in that present fatherhood masculinity is something that we definitely don't have in our culture here in the West. And I think maybe it's, there's still some of those those ties, but I don't want to delve into those things quite yet. <laughs> I want to ask who is Mustafa Thailand Tamil in 2023? Oh, what a question. I'm not prepared for that. Who am I? I'm just a human being, mate. I haven't got some like amazing answer that I'm this and I'm that. And I, If you asked me five years ago, I'd have rattled off all the things I've achieved, all the businesses I own, all the things that, you know, that might put me in social status, but mm. I ain't about that. Our one vocation on the earth is to be a good human being. Mm. That's what I hope is what I'll leave behind. And what does that look like? What does it look like to be a good human being in your eyes? To affect those around you positively, to do well for the community, to be a part of something greater than yourself. Those things 
uh, are genuinely really important to me. And I know we joke about it before the show and I mess about online or, or say what I say, but those things genuinely like, when I'm laying on my deathbed, am I going to remember how many AMGs I had? Or what watch I was wearing? Do you know what I mean? Or am I going to remember the people that were nice to me or I was nice to or who I helped along the way? And, you know, what matters at that point is all the relationships around you. So mm. if that matters now, why do we not allow it to matter now? If that matters then, sorry, at the end, why do we not allow it to matter now? Yes. Do you see what I mean? I feel like we, we just smash through life really, really quickly onto the next thing. And I'm really guilty of this, onto the next thing, onto the next thing. But you get actually, destination addiction. Oh, so I'm, the, I'm the worst one for it. Mm. Like I'm doing loads of work on it. That kind of, when I get here, I will be happy. When I get this car, when I get this job, when I get, it might be this partner, I'll be happy. Mm. That piece is dangerous. And I've been living like that for a decade. It's only since COVID that that's shifted. It's interesting that you can be so self-aware of something, yet still so perilously bound to it. Because I've seen posts on Instagram spanning back to, you know, maybe eight years ago, mm -hmm. and there was like a, a paper watch and a paper badge of Mercedes on the steering wheel and your little caption with 30 likes saying, you know, these things don't matter. And a bit of a paragraph, probably alluding to some of the things you've just mentioned there. But it's taken that process in the last few years for you to begin to really dwell on this even more, I guess. I don't know whether I've always been that guy, but I was so worried about fitting in when I was growing up that I had to be this guy because I thought this is the guy that the people would like. So it wasn't necessarily who I was. It was who I thought you wanted me to be. And it's that, that's, I, when you get a little bit older and you stop giving a shit, I think, what people think too much or not as much as you used to, because I'd be lying if I said I didn't care completely, is when you can kind of start being a bit more true to yourself. Mm. That's, what I've, that's what I'm trying to discover now. But I also, like, I have these funny moments where I'm like, what's it all for? Because if I zoom out far enough, I'm on the planet for 60 years. No one's going to remember me. Who's remembered the person before me? For a week? For a day? For a month? Then it's over. Mm. Not in like, let's be reckless, but in like, none of it really matters. I have this battle of none of it really matters and I want to buy a villa in America and I need to... Do you understand what I mean? Like I've got this like battle within my head of who do I want to be and where do I want to go and what actually matters to me in life. Mm. I get confused about what matters to me and what... I think should matter to me. And, and somewhere in that, there's also the interplay between you come to a, a place where you're like, oh, I don't care what people think anymore. And then you even start to realize, well, I, I should care what people think for their sake. You know, even you, 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 you can be all blase and be like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to go off and do whatever I want. But ultimately, it's still going to have an effect on other people. And if you're being altruistic and putting yourself second and other people first, you almost need to care about what other people think for their sake and not even their own mm -hmm. sake, which I think is a, an interesting realisation that I've come to uh, in, in the last few months. Is that something that you yeah, wrestle with? I get that. I also try and, I'm trying really, really difficult to, really hard to not take things too personally and try and see the best in people because mm. everyone's got that in them. Like if my wife comes home and starts moaning about someone in the girls group on WhatsApp said X or said Y. Like the old me would have been angry and been like, right, I'm going to message her. Who talks? No one talks to her like that. You know, like 10 years ago, I might have been that guy. Now I'm like, babe, you know, I said, look, you don't know what, what day she's had today. You don't know what she's gone through. Like that, that, if anything, see that as a cry for help. You know, if she's outwardly 
yeah, projecting herself, but in a negative tone, that might be that she actually probably just needs a cuddle or someone to ask her how she's doing. Like, don't that's not on you, that's on her. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I try that, and and it and it annoys some of my uh, older friends that I've, I've known for a long time, and even some of my older team. It will annoy them because they're like, "Well, how are you staying so calm about that? Someone said X about you." And I'm like, "Well, if I go and headbutt him." or I sit here and smile, it doesn't change the outcome. What's said is said. Mm. Like, I'm the one that's going to be hurt if I carry that. So smile and wave and carry about my day. I still live a very fortunate life, regardless what people think of me or don't think of me. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's having perspective over circumstances in, in, a, in a maxim. <laughs> Completely. Um, and, Completely. I, and I think that's, that's something which is very easy to say, very difficult to do in practice, and probably something that you've journeyed um, over a number of years. And I know we could spiral off into talking about conversations, but I think it is really important for people who are tuning in who have no idea who you are and they want to hear the origin story and embed it in who you were as a child and growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always ask this question on my podcast because it very much links to, you know, the question is, what were you like as a child? And then as you're as we're having this conversation in the next 45 minutes, I'm going, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Especially going into psychology. You know? so, so what were you like as a child? And time? also, like, everything that we are today... All of our actions come from, stem from our childhood mm-hmm. experiences, don't they? I've done a lot of unpacking with that with therapy. What was I like as a child? I was generally pretty well behaved. I was generally a good kid, like happy-go-lucky, you know, like joking around, smiling, all that kind of stuff. Um, we moved to England, as I said, when I was two years old from Turkey to have a better life. We moved to London originally till I was about 10. And then we moved down south to find, because the areas we were living in London were not necessarily that great at the time. Um, But I guess in London, I felt a little bit more at home because in those days, not like that now, but you still, you hung around with your own, so to speak. So like the Turks were with the Turks, the Kurds were with the Kurds, the Blacks were with the Blacks. There wasn't a lot of mixing. The communities were very like separated. So you... Like I have family and friends who were born and grew up in London who don't speak as well English as me because they've forever been in their bubble. Yeah. They've not actually integrated. So they're living in a town or in an area in London that's all just them. The, the market's theirs, everything's theirs. So they just speak Turkish all day long. So their English is awful. I'm like, mate, you're born in London. I'm an immigrant. <laughs> Your English yeah. should be better than mine. Yeah. Um, and then when we came down to Swanage... I think like that's probably where I started to get confused about who I was and, and what life should look like and how life should behave. Because um, my mum and dad, I was very, very fortunate. We had no money, but I had unconditional love. And I think that's something that's also missing in the Western world, in Britain. Like real, genuine, unconditional love from parents to kids mm-hmm. and vice versa. The family is yeah. very much the source and the, and the root of so much brokenness and challenge and you, you mentioned you know you go to therapy almost as a preventative thing or, or trying to work things out but so many people need therapy only because of just challenged ways and in ways that they give and receive love yeah. attention the way they see themselves ultimately flowing through that that connection they have with their parents or not mm-hmm. i think you know you can probably speak to the importance of that in, in your life then I'm, I'm very fortunate in that sense and you know my mom and dad are still together they still hold hands and skip which is also pretty rare mm. in this day and age. Um, 
so yeah, I had tons of love from them, tons of support. My dad was very, I don't know how to describe him, traditional, but not traditional. So untraditional in a way that he didn't push any culture down my throat. He didn't push any religion down my throat. He didn't push anything. He kind of always used to say, son, this is my experience with it. And this would be my advice to you, but you're welcome to do kind of what you want to do. And very, very empowering from a very young age. You know, like we'd be in a coffee shop and he would give me a fiver and say, order me and your mum a cup of tea and whatever you want. And I'd be moaning at him. I'd be like, dad, I'm the kid. You're the adult. You know, like when you're that age, why am I going up to the till? You go up to the till. It's only now when I look back, I think he's teaching me how to be confident. He's teaching me how to hold my own in a room. He's teaching me all these things that now is a superpower. But at the time I was thinking, what the hell is this guy on? And it's very obvious uh, to see when you look around you, when you interact with people, the people that didn't have that experience and how crippling that can be. I mean, we'll get onto it later, but the I think a lot of your businesses and the, I guess, material success that you've enjoyed has come as a result of your ability to network mm-hmm. and just be good with people and yeah. just be proactive in that way. It's not necessarily some technical algorithmic skill that you, you may possess. Obviously, I'm not going to take away from some of those <laughs> things, but I don't want to insult you. No, but no, ultimately, no, the bedrock of everything that you've done is through... The ability to have really good relationships with people. Humans. Humans. That's it. I'm not a- academically intelligent. I've not really studied like I've done until GCSEs. That's it. Went back to college a few times. I've not done any of that stuff. But that always used to serve me at a very young age. Like, real success is being able to affect those around you positively. He always used to say, son, doesn't matter if someone's green, black, white, blue, what they believe in. If they're a good human to you, be good to them. You know, all these kind of, it's fucking cliche, right? But all these things were very, like, embedded in me from a very, very young age. Very young age. And at the time, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It's only when I've got a bit older and older. But I started going to school in Swanage. And as I said, there was no takeaways, no kind of foreign community. It was just us. And that's when I probably started to struggle a little bit because I kind of looked around and I thought, right, who's the cool kid at school? Who's the one that the girls are all speaking to? Who's the one that seems to have all the nice things? And, and what do they have in their life that I don't, that maybe gives them that? And I thought, money. That's the one thing I kept looking at. Like, their parents own these businesses, or their parents have this car, or that jet ski, or this. Do you know what I mean? So in my head, I very early on thought, right, if I have money, I'm going to have happiness. Like, these things work together. So I spent the rest of my life until about five years ago, trying to accumulate as much of that as I could, <laughs> thinking I'm going to be fucking happy when I have this or that or this money or that money. How wrong was I? How would you see money? What's your like relationship with it now? How do I see it now? I think it makes you more of what you are. It doesn't make you something you're not. People will say money you know, money's the root of all evil or money makes you a dick. No, you're a dick anyway. Money makes you a bigger dick. Mm. Like, I always think about that with my dad. Like, my dad's the most generous, you know, open-hearted community leader. He'll do anything for anyone. When he had nothing, he'd do anything for anyone. Now he's got everything, he does more for everyone. Do you know what I mean? He's not done the, he's not done the traditional Western thing where he's built a bigger wall. He's built a bigger table. Yes. And that's how I live. Like... I can't eat if you're not eating. As in, I can't sit in front of you and eat a steak if I know that you can't afford the steak. We either both don't eat 
or I'm buying your estate. For some reason, that really reminds me of a one story you shared on your Instagram so like two years ago. You bought like a five hundred pound coffee or something like that. Yeah. Like this <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I remember some random things, but that yeah. There was this place in Mayfair. I actually didn't pay for it, just for the okay. listeners. <laughs> I refused to pay that much money for a fucking coffee. <laughs> and I love coffee. There was this place in Mayfair that had this crazy coffee that was served in gold cup and it was very kind of Arab vibe there, if you know what I mean, like oil money kind of vibe. Um, and we thought, we'll just pop in and see what the fuss is about because we're all famous. And um, I think the place is called Shot, maybe, in Mayfair. And it feels, it's all like all the Arabs are outside, you know, it's, it's in Mayfair, it's that kind of vibe. Went in, ordered this coffee. It was £252 each and we had bought two. My mate bought one for me, one for him. Um, he's severely caked, like out of sight, if you know what I mean. And um, this coffee, and he, the woman was a bit shocked. We're like, can we have two of those? And she was like, you sure? We were like, yeah. <laughs> like, have you seen the price sort of thing? We're all in tracksuits. We're both in tracksuits. Like, we're not dressed like the others, all dripping with watches and, and brands. Tasted like absolute shit. It was like, <laughs> it was like a watered-down Americano. No flavour. It's got this fermented bean that had been in, like, some rare bean that only comes out for one month. Complete waste of money. Complete waste of money. Yeah. Don't recommend it. I mean, you could over you could make an analogy over and overdo it, but I think this speaks to that kind of yeah. You have all this money, you, you, you think you're going to get something better, and ultimately you've used it for a, a stupid purpose. What, what what it does is it gives you. I don't want to say freedom, but it gives you a sense of freedom. So, if you don't have to worry about the mortgage payment at the end of the month, or the rent payment at the end of the month, or how your mum's going to eat, how your kids are going to eat, how your dad's going to eat. It makes that a bit easier, that part of life. Mm. Um, I think I'd be dumb to say if we didn't, you don't want money, because the, the whole world's built around it. You can't do anything without it. Mm. You can't do anything without it. Even like philanthropy or you, you, making even positive. the good. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And I think that's that's something where too many people are too cynical about it. It's like actually, let's have a reasonable conversation about like sensible stewardship. I mean, the Bible talks a lot about that in terms of, you know. If, if, if God has given you something, steward it responsibly. Like, do well with it, but don't just throw it all in the bin or have a cynical perspective of it. And I think it's, some, it's good to um, be able to provide and have that for other people, I suppose, as well, it's, to take the stress time. off. It gives you time. Yes. You know, all the stuff I do with the community stuff, the charity work, the nighttime economy stuff, the town centre bid, I give up a lot of time for free to do this stuff because I genuinely believe it's making our community better and one day I'm going to bring kids to this world. What world am I leaving for those kids? Do you know what I mean? So, but I couldn't do that stuff if I was working a nine to five on 300 quid a week. I couldn't. Not there's anything wrong with that job. I couldn't give three days a week up. How would I feed my family? Mm. So, I've got money over here and it's given me the time to do what I really enjoy, what I find purpose in and what I can do to help. Mm. That's the benefit of it. Yeah. And so you said you didn't have much money when you were growing up no. and that became almost like an idol and kind of go place that at the top of the, the values and you'd almost do anything to, in order to, to get that. Were there any particular lessons that your dad taught you around that as you were coming out of, you said you went up to like GCSE level and then you were maybe college, not college, kind of mucking around, right. that kind of thing. Yeah. How, you know, what were you like in that kind of time period and especially like the relationship with, with your parents kind of trying to, you know, let you flee the nest, but also, you know. My dad said something to me, I think when I was 
17, maybe, when you finished GCSEs and I'd gone back to college. He, he said a few things. One of the things was, son, no one's ever been to university in our family, ever. We're in a position now, because we were very poor when I was young, very poor. Like I remember in London, we lived in one room, half the size of this room we're in now, slept in one bed, me, mum and dad. And some days I would eat and they couldn't eat. And some days I couldn't eat because we couldn't afford to eat. He said a few things. He said, go to university. We're now in a position. So when I got to like that kind of age, dad had a few little businesses and we were, we were finding our feet. He was starting to build a bit of an empire. He was like, I could afford to send you to university now if you want to go to university. But I was never really good at studying because I couldn't concentrate, as you just noticed there. My mind wanders and then I <laughs> yeah. go, out, go out the room. I went to college. I thought, do you know what? I want to make him proud. So I went back to, I couldn't go to, I tried A-levels, couldn't stick around at school because I was, it's in the same environment. So I was being a bit naughty. Went to college. Mate, I've done everything. I did business management. I did civil law. I did financial planning. I thought I'll wear a suit to work, proper middle class white vibe. I'll do all of that kind of stuff. Just didn't work. I couldn't do it. Um, and every time I was kind of quitting a course three, six months in, flying at it, I was annoyingly one of these kids that was quite good at stuff if I concentrated on it, but I just didn't. I, I quit. And um, I remember he said something to me. He said, son, pretend me and your mum weren't around. He said, God forbid something happens to us tomorrow and we pass. Whatever you would do then to survive, he said, do it now. Mm. I don't care if it's legal, illegal. I don't care what you've got to do, what you're hustling, do it. He said, because at least if you fall, I'm here to help you back up rather than doing it on your own. That's an incredible amount of like empowerment to a 17, 18-year-old boy. Balls have just dropped, full of testosterone, thinks he can take on the world, but scared of his parents you know, being disapproving. And then your parents open the door and go, mm. off you go, in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that for me was... At that point, I was like, right, what do I enjoy? Humans, people, enjoy speaking to people. It wasn't called networking in those days. That's fucking, that's a buzzword that's been brought out a decade ago. No, there's no such thing as networking. I was very, very good, without sounding like a raging narcissist. I played a lot of chess with dad growing up. I think me and you have spoke about this before. A lot of life lessons, a lot of like little power plays he would teach me. I wouldn't know that I didn't know they were power plays till I read Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power. When I read that book five, six years ago, I was like, fuck, 30 of these already I know and I implement day to day in life. Dad's built me into them, if you know what I mean. So when I was young, when I was like 15, 16, 17, I discovered that I could make people trust me and uh, feel comfortable around me and that I could influence their way of thinking. Um, and I used it for a bit more negative when I was younger. So I'd manipulate girls to be able to pull them. I'd, tell, I'd know exactly within five minutes of talking to someone, I'd know what makes them tick. I'd know what they're looking for in a guy or I'd know you know what, what words would make them go, oh yeah, you know the right thing to say at the right time. You game, gamify this, a little bit. Yeah, very, very early. And I was like using it and I just, I was a little kid. I was really short. I had no beard, no facial hair till year 10. Nothing. I was the little kid that was cute at school that the girls never fancied that they're all friends with. And I wanted to be that cool kid. Went away at year 10 for some holidays. Come back year 11, six foot one, chiseled. Complete different dude. Walked into school. Everyone's like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and obviously like the first time I've got this attention from, from the opposite sex, from the cool kids at school from all these people. 
It just went to my head. And I, um, I used a lot of that influence early on for not so nice stuff. But that's, that's what I'm talking about here. So when that networking piece come out, when I went to, then I went to college a few times, I fit in really easily. And then I met a lad, a guy who said, who was running like all the nightclubs in Bournemouth at the time. He was like a marketing director for a guy that owned pretty much all of them. And he said to me, Ty, we're trying to tap into the college market. We can't get into the college market. You're at college. Do you want to give out some flyers and stuff for us? That's kind of how it all started. And I was like, do you know what? I'm at Bournemouth College. I'm not from Bournemouth. I could do with an excuse to talk to people. You know, like, you know, as a promoter, you have to just go in, ball in, speak to groups of girls. And it doesn't matter if you get knocked back because you, you weren't really trying to chat them up. You were just trying to give them a flyer. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how it all started. And, and, and I did that. Then I did uh, some ticket selling from, from flyers that went on to selling tickets for events. Then I went to nightclubs that were kind of closed on certain days or really quiet and said to them, look, we'll do a night. You take the bar money, we take the door money. That's a standard promoter deal. So to give you an example, like um, V, who's what's now Halo, so yeah. I used to do nights there, that holds a thousand people. We would charge five pounds to get in. And in those days we paid 250 for a DJ and 250 quid for some flyers and we'd give them out ourselves. So if we sold that out, it's five grand revenue, 500 quid spending and four and a half grand profit. In those days, all cash. Now, if you're doing that across a few clubs, across a few towns, you're on like premiership footballer money but you're fucking 18, 19. No one's taught you rich dad, poor dad, right? My dad's got no knowledge of how to make money work for him. He works for money. He doesn't know the difference. Mm. So I don't have that ability to learn from anyone. So I'm collating all this cash in shoeboxes under my bed. Don't really know what to do with it. Never heard of HMRC or self-assessment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then eventually, like, I kind of, I guess, did a bit of research, asked some of my elders... One thing that's really important in life is mentors. Mm, yeah, for sure, for sure. Whether you know they're a mentor or not, one thing I felt like my dad was my biggest mentor. But along the way, I always had quite an old head on my shoulders, if you know what I mean. I was like 18 going on 40. Things I was interested in, things I'd connect with, um, the profoundness that come from my dad. Uh, it's what I'm saying to you. I think I always had this in me. I just think I was probably afraid to show it in that 18 to 30 years when it's not very cool to be into quotes and to be profound and actually care about life. <laughs> yeah, because I think, cause, <laughs> hey, like, because almost people don't want you to be the pin that bursts their bubble of, I'm just enjoying the thing for what it is. And you're there going like, yeah, but what's the point? Or have you considered this? And they're, oh, they, they, they want to stay in, in yeah. not thinking about those things. And so you probably don't want to come in all guns blazing with what you're describing as it's what we said earlier right about the ignorance is bliss yes like the more aware you get in life i think parts of it can make you actually more unhappy because you start questioning your existence and you mm. start questioning your purpose and the people that are around you are they for real is their purpose for real is their agenda to you for real or are they trying to get somewhere but it's it's quite a hard place to be because you get stuck doubting everyone you get quite paranoid i think like I was probably the happiest when I was a little bit ignorant to everything. I feel more content now. I feel more happy in terms of... Happiness is an emotion as well, right? I don't even like really like using the word because it's a state. It's a state of how you're feeling. You can't always be there. So, but I can find pockets of joy in things I do, which is great. Um, I'm not always going to be happy. I don't take... I take everything at 
kind of face value now. I don't let my preset, I try not letting my preset biases of someone judge. I actually read it this morning. It was on Daily Laws or Daily Stoic. One of them talked about the exact same thing. Confirmation bias or something. Mm. Maybe it was yesterday. Confirmation bias, the idea that you look for things that, to back up your pre-existing beliefs. Yes. And you, so you, you judge have, you have the blinders you... on mm. and you're, you're unaware that you have the blinders on and therefore you select for certain friends or certain uh, women or men in your life based on the experiences and the views that you have. Mm. And you're completely unaware that you know, you're just selecting for these things everywhere you go because you're naturally just drawn to them by virtue of you being you and having the interests you do. It's like and your body, it's like about, it's about survival, isn't it, with humans? So, mm. you know, when I first meet you, I've got a trillion memories in my head of things and my brain is racking through trying to connect you to one of those to figure out who you are. Mm. It doesn't know you, so it can't connect you. But you then say three words and it connects you to eight things that's happened in my life where someone's mentioned those three words. And if they've generally been negative, my guard's up straight away. Yeah, like you can't have a special friend's discount no matter what Ben Deacon says. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Fuck, I forgot about that. Yeah. Some skin, I was with him yesterday. Some skinny 18-year-old boy with a top knot. I was, who's he think he is? I had no idea who you were, obviously. And I was like, who's this guy? Like trying to ask, <laughs> oh, my mate. Like, mate I, you was during lockdown, right? So yes, yeah, yeah. everyone's trying to buy bikes. I think I, I wanted a bike and my missus wanted a bike. And the only bike shop was the one you were working at the time. There was a queue outside. I remember putting a photo up of it on my story and saying, I'm in the wrong trade. It's one in, one out of the bike shop <laughs> and the nightclub was shut. And Ben Deacon was like, old friend of mine, I grew up with him. He got shot. He was in the Marines. I went and picked him up from Birmingham Military Hospital. He had a bullet go through his leg. He wore it around his neck for a while. And um, I remember coming to the shop and wet, queuing, 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 getting in. He was like, just name drop me. And I named, <laughs> you just shut me straight down, didn't you? I was like, who the fuck's this spotty little kid giving me shit like <laughs> Deep down, my ego is like, oh. <laughs> yeah. I just thought, you know what? I can afford to buy the bike anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just being a freak. Yeah, he got it repaired and then went to Primera. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, you didn't have any bikes and stuff. No, we didn't. And there's a certain irony to that. I don't want to talk about this too much, but there's a certain irony to that, that during the time between March 2020 and probably May, June, I'd, I've never come into contact with as many people in my life you know, you think, oh, government lockdown, everyone's stopped doing what they're doing. Uh, don't go outside, stay inside, don't come into contact with people. And I, the footfall of the shop was like a constant stream of people. This is before masks as well. Yeah, it's yeah, a constant stream of people for about four months. And I was just new person, new person, new person. It's just kind of ironic to me that like, I'm never going to see that many people in my life. But the whole point was that it was supposed to go the opposite way. Um, I want to ask a question about uh, the which I think is so powerful, that, that enabling um, character that your dad had in order to say, like, take the risks now whilst we're still around to be able to pick you up if you fall. And I think, I mean, I'll ask, do you think that's something that not enough parents do in terms of equipping their children and allowing them to be able to take risk and fail well? Because I think so many of us get showhorned into the 9-5, or at least the 9-5 mentality, and we all have dreams and ideas and things, but we never really flesh them out or even begin to entertain them because it's too risky or, you know, you need to find some, some kind of security. So it's a question I want to I ask. think it's generational. People play it safe. 
They prefer to play it safe. They prefer to do what they know. And there's good and bad things that my parents have passed on to me, unaware. And there'll be good and bad things that your parents have passed on to you, unaware. But we generally are a, are a mimic of what we've seen. So if you grow up and you've seen that your parents have both got careers, nine to five, they've studied and they work for someone else and they pay their tax, P-A-Y-E, and they have weekends off and evenings off, you're naturally going to think that's the way life should behave. All I saw growing up was struggle, challenge, um, grow up, set your own business up, run your own business. I've never known study route. I've never known work for someone else route. So that's how I presume life should behave. So I think we protect our children a bit too much, especially in this day and age. I mean, how old are you? 23. Yeah. 23. So you, you might just be out of there, but like, there's this thing at the moment with the youngsters, the 18, 19, 20 year olds, even my little cousins when I speak to them, they th they're almost so entitled that life should act a certain way that they absolutely crumble when they come across any challenge. Like every single human should go through, not should, will go through loss, grief, getting dumped, you know, getting knocked back from a job. These are normal behaviors of life. But we've got this generation of people that are growing up that the moment they have any bit of those struggles in life that you should have, that actually make you tougher, that make you more resilient, they kind of buckle. And I'm going to be careful how I word it, but think that there's something wrong with their life or think that there's something wrong with themselves mentally sometimes when that's not the case. Mm. That's not the case at all. Do you know what I mean? Like when I say to my dad, you know, oh, it's a bit risky. You know, my dad always had this mindset. He said to me, son, the moment we were born, we were unlucky. We were born to in the middle of a war in one of the worst parts in the world. He said, so everything, us breathing was a risk. Us getting to school was a risk. So you're telling me what's a risk? That you might get laughed up in class, laughed at in class because you performed something wrong. What risk is that? Any risk to your life? No, it's not really a risk. Mm. Like this kind of, again, the profoundness, right? Mm. So he was like to me, if it's no risk to life, it's no risk. Because that's the world he comes from. Mm. But if your parents have grown up a certain way or his parents or her parents have grown up a certain way, that's all they know. So I don't blame them. I don't blame them. I do think we need a little bit more allowing people to discover things for themselves, especially in the Western world. Yeah. More I, so. It speaks to the perspective over circumstance again because you have that grounding in, firstly, the struggle that your parents had to go through. Therefore, you you know you don't take those things for granted. The fact that you don't have to go through the same struggles, and they've been able to provide you a platform and a springboard into you know going on and doing hopefully better things. But I think what you speak to there is that that resilience that's potentially lacking in, in this generation. And I think as someone who's very interested in psychology, and I want to go into that route, um, hearing things like uh, Dr. Robert Stevens saying that we ha we are um, psychological beings living in a world of physical stress mm -hmm. and the physical world that we live in the conditions that we uh have put ourselves in through honestly not, not no fault of our own because you can also say to someone they don't know any different so it's not necessarily their fault but it is their responsibility to realize that yeah realistically in terms of all of human history we have it the absolute easiest now mm -hmm. but we have the highest rates of mental distress and we have a over diagnosis of lots of things which are a very small amount pathological 
most of it environmental, most of it as a result of just just maybe have a cold shower and wake up and go to the gym and you'll feel better, get your life in order. We gravitate to people like Jordan Peterson who just tell us to clean our room. And it's like, it's not that profound, but it is because you're setting the physical world in order that then sets the mental world in order. And we don't necessarily need to have long drawn out, deep psychiatric care or pills and things. And I'm not discrediting that those things mm are very very useful for select circumstances but i think yeah you've got to be careful how they were these things but people are quite soft they are soft and i they think that creates the problem of staying within a bubble because if you're not resilient you're not resilient to risk as you described and obviously that's something you can attribute a lot of the um things you were go- able to go out and do and actually be able to take that risk and make a, a success of it i have friends that are working a nine to five on quite a modest salary. And they're so happy and they're so content and they don't want for more. And I'm fucking jealous of it. I'm so jealous of it. Sometimes I wish I don't have that drive. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes I wish like I have moments where I say to my wife, fucking I'm done with it all. I'm just going to sell everything, get a job on 50 grand a year. I'm sure someone will pay me 50 grand a year to do something. I'm probably unemployable to be fair, but, um, and, and just and just live, turn my fucking social media off and just kind of do what some of my friends do. Because the problem is when you put your head above the parapet, like you, when you're striving for more, the fall is hard. <laughs> and everyone secretly wants you to fall, if I'm honest. Like, there isn't many people in the world that want you to do well, really. Everyone wants you to do well, but never as well as them. They want to keep a foot on your head. They want to keep a foot on your head all the time. And this is where the family piece comes back in because the truest people, like the only people in the world that will give you shit to your face and stick up for you behind your back are your parents or your cousins or your brothers and sisters or, if you're very fortunate, a small group of real friends. Mm. That That's the reality of it. Like, me and my mates, just the other day I was saying this to someone in the car, I give him so much shit to his face like rip him apart because we just love all the banter, like roasting each other. He does the same to me. He gives me worse than I give him. And someone else was in the car with us and they were like, fucking hell, you lot give each other loads of shit. And I'm like, yeah, here we do. Catch me in a room when someone asks about him. Catch me in a room when an opportunity presents itself. Who do I put forward? I put my mate forward. I put you forward. I put him forward. Hmm. That's true. That's being real. I don't know. I don't know if, if... If you want that kind of, I'm just trying to think now, if I didn't do what I did and I just took the, not, I don't want to say the easy route because that's discrediting people, but if I took the Safe. more traditional route, yeah. I should say. There's an element of luck, right? CEOs will hate to tell you this. Entrepreneurs will hate to tell you this. I hate that fucking word anyway, but, but there's an element of timing with stuff. There's an element of luck with stuff. There isn't any luck. You know, the harder you work, the luckier you get, and all these kind of phrases, I agree with them. But timing is important, you know. Timing is important. Maybe the period that I grew up, in a circumstance that I grew up, that path worked for me. doesn't mean it's going to be work for you. And doesn't mean my parents were right bringing me up the way they did and yours were wrong. There is. Do you know what I mean? It's, there's no right or wrong. Mm. I don't think. What's the end game? I've grown up the way I've grown up. You've grown up the way you've grown up. We're sat in a room now having a discussion. You're doing your best to be a good human being in society, and so am I. But worlds apart. 
at the same time. You get really profound here. And no, but you know what be, I mean. Be like, what's your definition of good? What are you using to define <laughs> what good is? <laughs> we, we could almost delve into the, the religious now. But, Let's do it. Uh, I, but I do, I do think there are some things that I want to bring forward in the conversation. If someone's kind of, okay, cool. We got to that stage. You were selling these papers. And yeah, yeah. it does kind of come into the religious insofar as Halo is in a church. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about that as well. Um, but one of the questions I was asking my friend, um, you, you know him actually, Finn Wakeham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I met him for you. Accountant KPMG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he said, from his perspective, the question he wanted to ask was, um, from a young person's perspective, how do you, um, and I know you, know you had your particular way of uh, going through that that is a combination of the principles that were instilled within you, the risk you, your parents allowed you to then have, the willing spirit of, of yourself being proactive and also maybe an element of luck and timing. Mm -hmm. But those conditions work for you. But in general, how do you generate funds and backing to be able to take a leap into setting up your own business? Or I don't, I mean, I don't actually know how you came to be the director of Halo. Like, was it a business before that you took over and rebranded or did you found we, it and we, all those kind of things? We, it was a club before we bought it and it shut down. We took it over, reopened it. Now, funding is a funny one, right? Because my, like a lot of people from the outside think my dad gave me the money. My dad had no money. My dad took a five grand Tesco loan and gave me the five grand. That's all he had when I took on Halo when I was 24. In terms of cash, he had a couple of businesses like kebab shops and stuff, but they were hand to mouth. He hadn't, didn't have a pot of money. He got a five grand Tesco loan from Money Supermarket or whatever it was called at the time. And I did the same. And we have 10 grand between us, basically. I raised the funds in an unorthodox way. I raised the funds by taking huge risks, by borrowing off unsavory people. That's what I did. Some of it, you know, some of it then when you get into like promoting, then I built a bit of pot up money there. But my dad didn't have any money. He gave me five grand and I paid him back like seven years later. He wouldn't accept it back, <laughs> but I paid him back anyway, if you know what I mean. Um, but funds like Gary Vee talks us about a lot, but there's no real excuse nowadays with the internet. <clears throat> like Facebook Marketplace. I've got friends that are hustling. Go on Facebook Marketplace. You can pick up stuff for free. You can pick up this coffee table for free. Someone, I'm the idiot that gives shit away for free because I can't be fucked. Come and collect it. So go and collect that coffee table for free. Or it's, it's a tenner, offer them five quid. You haven't got a car? Fine, carry it on the fucking bus as Gary Vee says. Get back to your house, get your little smartphone, put it back on Facebook play, Facebook Marketplace for 15 quid, sell it. Do 10 of those items a day. Start building that funds up. You see what I mean? It, the, everyone goes, I can't start a business because I've got no money, but I, I don't know if I subscribe to that. What do you actually need money for? What do you need money for? Do you understand what I'm trying to get at? What, what I mean by that is the concept requires no money. Money is if you want to build something or buy something. But you've got to start small. Mm. You don't need any money for that. Mm. You, know I mean? you don't need any money to side hustle. You can still do your nine to five and work every evening and every weekend. Six till nine, six till nine. Exactly that. And that's a full day. Mm. Like six till nine and six till nine is where I actually do all my work. Right now you're eating up all my work time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because nine till five, I'm being pulled pillar to post from staff, for meetings, for coffees, for this, for that. Which sounds really nice, right? And all my employed friends go, oh, you got it fucking easy. You just go around having coffees all day. Someone's got to do the work at some point. 
I do the work six till nine, or I do the work six till nine. Or 10 or 11 or, yeah, or some, all nighters and sometimes I'd imagine night. the stress. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I and listen, I'm not, I'm not promoting that either. I think that's a real toxic narrative that we have going on at hustle the Hustle culture, yeah. Fucking horrendous. Oh, I was up till midnight, got back up at four, hustle, hustle, hustle. Fuck off. You know, what's all that about? Well, now, now we'll talk about it later, but now you're into your health and wellness and you've got the whoop and stuff. You've got <laughs> sleep score five out of 100. But I used to be that it's guy. It's not sustainable, is it? I used to be that guy. And I've got friends still in Bournemouth that are peddling that message. But when you see them, they're like, oh, I'm so busy. Yeah, I fucking was up till four. I'm so busy. Mate, there's nothing to fucking brag about that. Get your shit in order. Mm. Like, you're fucking reckless. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they haven't got to the stage of being able to leverage their time more effectively to be able to have balance, to be able to sustainably engage with business, to make clearer, more sober-minded decisions. Because when you're running on three hours of sleep and 500 milligrams of caffeine... Are you really in a position to be able to make the most effective decisions? Are you able to stretch your time and do that over the course of five years rather than five days or five weeks? And all those things start to... Start you to know play. Matthew Walker, yeah? Why We Sleep. Sleep Doctor. I've you heard, heard of, him? of him. He wrote a book called Why We Sleep. He's been on Joe Rogan, Stephen Bartlett, all this stuff. He said something that, funny enough, come up again on TikTok today when I was scrolling this morning. He said, if you have no sleep for just 20 hours the impairment it creates to your brain is the same as being legally drunk. How many times have you been up for 20 hours? I have a lot. 20 hours in one go. All it takes is an early morning followed by a late night. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Saturday morning, I got up at half three in the morning to go and organise that hike. My alarm went off at half three in the morning. I got home at 11pm. I didn't sleep till midnight. And I got back up at 7am to go and play this charity football match. So when I was driving home, I'm drunk whether I feel it or not, my decision-making shit. If someone run out in the road, that thinking process is going to be slow. Or even if someone is engaging in a pressured decision about where to take one of the businesses or, <laughs> crap, we've got this stakeholder that's asking mm -hmm. where his return is and you're going, Ooh, and you're acting on five hours sleep, you're not going to be operating from the, from no, the best place. No, nowhere near, nowhere near. Like sleep, That this guy, that guy also changed my life a bit and... I have to give a shout out to Chris Billum Smith because he got me on the whoop a few years ago and he got me on this Matthew Walker guy and I refused. I've had the book on my shelf for fucking two years. I said, I'm not going to read it because I'm actually frightened to read it because I don't sleep as much as I know I should do, but I probably didn't understand the dangers of not sleeping enough. Mm. You know, he says it's the elixir of life, sleep. Sleep is Mother Nature's like... closest thing to giving you immortality. Mm. Sleep. I think it's... Uh, I had a conversation on my podcast just over a year ago with a guy called Alex Demerell who coaches like he coaches entrepreneurs and, and business leaders in in on, this and I think it's it's really obvious and that's the really frustrating thing is it's like there's no magic pill there's no um, five step morning routine there's no supplement it's just be in bed for longer asleep it's boring it's not fancy you can't sell it to anyone but it is the bedrock of everything else. You can nail on training and nutrition and networking and human connection and all on top of that. But ultimately, if you aren't sleeping, well, I would say at least seven hours a night, mm -hmm. you're really not operating from a, a good place. And I think it's something that I've really wrestled with in, in the recent years. And there's been so many times where, oh, I'm in a new chapter in life or I've never won for January resolutions, but <laughs> you know, wh whatever it takes to have a new fresh chapter, oh, Monday, okay, Okay, Monday, okay, Sunday night, I'm going to go to bed at 10 p.m. 10 p.m. Sunday night. Well, like half 11. It's, oh. yeah, it's, a <laughs> it's like, 
Yeah. And all these like kind of, you know, lockdown, I tried it all and everyone did from cold water dipping to fucking breath work to meditating to journaling to yoga to all the kind of buzzwords that then started being peddled out that like to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be doing this, this and this. They're the bollocks. Like if it works for you, great. Ultimately, all these things, all we're trying to do is create stillness and create peace. But you could find that in other places. You know, I, I find that in running, which most people don't. I might not find it in meditating because I sometimes struggle to get into that state of meditation that actually makes a difference. Mm. So my brain won't allow me to switch off. I have to do guided meditation, then it's fucking long. And then I've got that time in the morning. Do you know what I mean? Like, this doesn't work. It's got to fit into your life. If it doesn't fit into your life, it probably shouldn't be there. Mm. There's like general principles to apply, but the specifics are just mm. whatever what, whatever you've latched onto and ultimately what whatever you want to do and what is ever is sustainable. Because you can talk about David Goggins' discipline all you like, but ultimately if you're not working with it, it's going to work against you and mm. you're going to fall flat on your face at some stage, one week or one month or one year after doing it. It's, it's not, not going to work with it. What, one of my friends, Gary Hill, who's a... PT, one of the the oldest PTs that I originally went with, he always used to say to me when I spoke to him about diet, and it stuck with me ever since. He used to say, Ty, do you know what the best diet is? I said, what? He said, the one you can stick to. So he said, if you you need to have a chocolate bar a day, have a fucking chocolate bar a day. But have it every day. You'll be absolutely fine. Build it into your macros, like, that's your diet, wicked. He said, because if you're going to have chicken and lettuce all week, and then eight bags of cocaine, 15 pints of lager, and 400 chocolate bars on a Saturday and Sunday, it's also not sustainable. So you might as well just have one a day, at least like your diet is consistent. It's <laughs> yeah. all consistency, isn't it? It is. Sustainable. Yeah. Like, what can you sustain? Mm. Business is the same. You know, you're spinning loads of plates. I do it. I spin loads of plates and every now and then I have a bit of a moment where it all crumbles down and I have to start again. You know, sometimes they're, they're beyond my control like COVID, but sometimes they're in my control. I just take on too much because I have some FOMO where I think I'm going to miss out on the next best opportunity. And this is something I wrestle with a lot. You know, like, if you come up to me saying, Ty, I've got this amazing idea for this app, or this event, or this whatever, the first thing my brain does is, don't miss out on this, you don't want to hear about it in five years, it's the next Amazon. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But actually, I've got no fucking time to give you, mate, really. I can chuck a bit of dough in, I can give you my resources and my black book, but I can't really give it the energy it needs, and I, I should know when to say no. That's where the power lies, when to say no. I can't do that always. Mm. That's, I struggle with that, still struggle with it. Yeah, I've seen a lot of advice uh, online recently that's steering me more towards doing one thing mm-hmm. very well. Like Be exceptional and double down on a specialization that that you can actually give proper time and attention and focus to. Because... Um, and it's contrary to, I suppose, what you've found yourself doing with spinning multiple different businesses. And mm-hmm. I know there's a, a general tie together of, okay, generally speaking, it's in events and marketing yeah. and those kind of things. And yes, you had the gym at one stage, but it's, it's, it's generally tying over, but also very individual. And um, I don't know, I, I, guess, I guess the question is like, how do you spin all those plates um and i guess for people who perhaps don't know we've touched on the halo as being your first business but what was it that went okay halo's going oh, okay something else something else you got sandfest 
Yeah, we've uh, got we've got Sanfest, you know, San Polo, we've got like restaurants, bars, um, a gym. It's in the Hilton now. We've got done a franchise deal. Like the podcast is very recent. You know, yeah. loads of other things. But I don't know. I said this to you before we started recording. I don't know whether I'm like running away from something. Do you know what I mean? I don't know whether I'm really. I've got some deep underlying thing that I haven't unpacked and dealt with. And the way I deal with that is some people drink, some people get off their head. I just keep myself extremely busy. So maybe I don't have enough time to sit and think. It's one of the reasons why I haven't dabbled in psychedelics yet, as much as everyone around me does. You know, most of the people around me are microdosing mushrooms or doing psilocybin retreats or doing ayahuasca. And the guy that you did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with. He owns the gym I train at. Yeah, Jeff, yeah, he's done that. I, I remember listening to that podcast yeah, in the car. Like yeah, he talked all about those experiences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, but like, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a bit afraid to be in my own head for that long because you can't escape, right? Like the moment, we have our own things, but the moment you feel like it's getting a bit heavy up top, it's getting a bit cloudy, it's getting a bit overwhelming, you know, you might pray, you might read the Bible, you might, you know, you might do your thing, whatever that is. I'll go and train or I'll go and, find something to keep my mind busy so I can switch off from that. Mm. Um, but if you were having these kind of plant-based medicines, you would effectively be stuck for four, six, eight, ten hours in this loop of trying to... You're sort of like, everything's going brain, on. Yeah, like, think of the things that you're most afraid of. You know, like, name me one thing that you're scared of. Um, could be an animal, could be a, a thick, like a small oh, that, that's a... One thing I have not had to think about that. (laughs) What am I scared of? Um, Or what that gives you a little bit of fear and a bit of anxiety if if I said that we're going to go and do this or you need to go and do this? That stumped me. Don't say you're not scared of anything because you've got Jesus on your side. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the correct answer. Um, What are you afraid of? And that will give me time to stall to to think. So I'm claustrophobic. I don't like small spaces. One of the reasons why I was picked on as a kid, I used to get put in a headlock. So that's one of the reasons. So when I get put in a headlock, I lash out because it brings back some trauma, which is one of the reasons why I started doing jiu-jitsu because Mm. as the military say, knowledge dispels fear. So I thought if I can understand that that headlock is no fucking danger to me whatsoever, and I can actually unravel that headlock and put you in a headlock, I wouldn't have any fear of being in that position. So that's one thing, you know, I have a little bit of, I'm a bit afraid of heights. This is one of the reasons why I was trying to do the fucking skydive. Same as you, it got cancelled. You did it in the end though, right? No, no, four times it's been cancelled. I've rescheduled again to March. I, weather, I'm going to have to do the same. Yeah, because yeah. I've got my parents messaging, you know, we, we put it in the, the yeah, church's yeah. weekly <laughs> newsletter and all these old ladies are wondering why you haven't done it. So like, I, I, think, and I was chatting to, this, to Aunt Middleton about this on my own podcast like two weeks ago. I said, I'm, I'm going to do a skydive because, he said, why? I said, because I'm, Afraid of heights, don't really like flying. It's fucking everything I hate. The plane's claustrophobic. You're wrapped to another guy. Mm-hmm. It's all like everything I hate. I'm just, I need to, I need to, because I'm afraid of it, I need to do it. I've got this weird thing in me that I attack what I'm afraid of. Mm. And he was like, Yeah, but do you not think, like, he said, he wrote about in his book, The Fear Bubble, you're going from zero to 100 time. You can even grab, for the people who are watching, you can even grab it from the, uh, so he says in this book i think about um he said you're going zero to 100 he said just step one step closer to the edge of a a hill you know mm. like if you're afraid of heights just like step by step step by step yeah 
nah, just just jump off the cliff. I've always been an all or nothing kind of dude. Yeah. I've been quite impulsive. If mm. I have time to think, I talk myself out of it. I'm a chronic overthinker. So I, t I tend not to. Like when we first did Samfest, it was six weeks out. I was in Marbella on a stag do and the opportunity came up and the guy that I was flying for that now works for me rung me saying, look, we've got this opportunity. You know, you've not decided and you've now on the stag do. We've got to decide six weeks away. Like, is it on or not? And I was like, I was half drunk. I was like, fuck it, we're doing it. <laughs> He's like, you sure? We're six weeks out. I was like, we're doing it. Like, not, and it's not, don't get me wrong, it's not, it's not a reckless impulsion. Like, it's not, I, I said this to my missus about this, like, my brain has this ability to, and a lot of people do, it's not saying anything special, to play out every single path very, very quickly. So when you ask me something and I reply to you in 30, 10 seconds, that's not impulsive. I've almost played every journey out. If I say no to this podcast, if I walk that way home, if I do this, if I do look at that guy, if I do that, what's going to happen? And my, I guess, preset biases or my experience tells me that this way feels like I need to go. Mm. And, I, and I make the decision and if I make the decision you'll find that I can be iffy making the decision and the reason why is I don't like going back on my word because my old man again for my dad like your words your honour you know like if you shake hands you, that's to the death uh, we said we were going to do a podcast yes it's taken yeah, yeah, a yeah, year yeah. for me being in different places and obviously I you know, appreciate you I want to do face to face as opposed to camera yeah. but eventually yeah your manner of word and I, 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 can't, I, I can't I just can't do it mm can't do it like if I've said I'm going to do something say I'm, you've got an event on and you said tied you on a table and I said I'll take a table whether I come or not I'm paying you for that table just because I can't mm. I've built that credibility up I don't want it to disappear do you know what I mean I've spent two decades building that credibility does that tie into the I guess identity crisis that you said you kind of felt in terms of playing onto other people and now a part of it is that everyone knows that you're the guy that has integrity and follows on from these things. So that's almost like something you're like really holding on to as well because you don't want to, that, that one thing that'll undermine everything, right? And that's what you're kind of yeah. spiraling out. I guess perhaps. that one thing doesn't matter in reality. That one thing. Are you scared of that? Like I being, must be. Because like your like, character being undermined, I guess. Yeah, that's the only thing I'm, like I don't really care about a business going wrong or something I've done failing, that stuff doesn't really stress me out too much. But I'm more worried about Joe Bloggs on the street going, he ripped me off. Or, and I don't know where that comes from. I've not unpacked that bit yet. Mm. Like I'm, I mean, you're studying this shit, right? So maybe you can not Not even, <laughs> not even, yeah. I'm not even studying psychology yet, yeah. But like, that element of it, hurts and I don't know why I don't know whether it comes back to so let's say me and you are meant to be mates and I don't know it's going to sound like a shit analogy and you unfollow me on Instagram fucking doesn't mean anything really to anyone but I start thinking in a way like I take that as he doesn't like hearing my thoughts he doesn't like seeing my posts he doesn't care about what I care about do you know what I mean? I make that a bit bigger than it is in my head when it's not really a thing. It doesn't really matter. Detach. Detaching that very difficult because we are human beings that live within community mm -hmm. and there are very uh, reasonable reasons why we feel those things because of in a, in, a, in a tribed community, social status and making sure you're in people's good books 
would be life and death. Yeah. We don't now live in life and death, but we still have the same brains. So you can't detach from that, but it's, it's, and it happens all the time within social circles everywhere where one person might share us a mistruth about someone else and they can know it's perfectly false and they know all the friends know that it's false. But the fact that thing has gone round, it pierces like nothing else, hearing things that you know aren't true about yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't uh, come through sixth form and GCSEs and uni unscathed from seeds being planted that aren't true that suddenly like oh it's undermining who I think I am and everything and it's really hard it is really hard to detach from that but I suppose it always comes back to earlier you know you 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 care about it not because you care about oh I don't care what people think but you also care from the perspective of yeah but it matters what they think for Mm. their sake because I don't want them to live out a mistruth especially when it relates to me. And also, like, the yes. social media thing, like, it's just social media is what you're told. But that's how, that's where we build our communities now. Mm-hmm. So that's the same thing, right? That's the modern version of us lot being in a fucking cave together, hunting together. We're now on there. We're in a Facebook group together or we're following each other. And that's our kind of, like, nod of the head, the approval. You're in my tribe, I'm in your tribe. I'm following you, you're following me. Do you know what I mean? So the... Maybe I'm too profound with it, but the deep meaning of that is heavy for me. You know, if you're meant to be my pal, but you're defending me on a platform that is a modern way of how we're friends, kind of, I read into that a lot deeper than most people would. Mm. Not that I might, you know, 10 years ago, I might ring you up and call you out on it. Now I don't. Now I just realise, okay, I get, I, I see where I stand. Do you know what I mean? You're okay with the fact that by being more authentically yourself, um, people are going to get rubbed off the wrong way about that. And you're okay with that because you, the connections that you do um, establish and go deeper on are the people that are selecting for you because they know the true you. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're not putting on a bravado. You know, you, it's, it's hard to let go of the social expectation in that way. But by being truly yourself, the people that naturally then gravitate towards you have a peace that they're not there. They're gravitating towards the real you as opposed to a, a facade. I'm working on that still. Mm. This is something I'm, I'm, it's in my head to get I, I better guess, at next year. I guess also because you, you you have personal branding, you have a, I mean, I'm looking at your Instagram now, the tap line is public figure. Mm. So you have a presence that's beyond the social circles and it, people know of you, they don't just know you. Mm-hmm. And therefore it's like, how much does the people that know of me, how much of that is an accurate reflection and then how much do you care about that? Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, like, there's certain things that I do that I value that I wouldn't have if I didn't act a certain way. If I didn't stay a bit vanilla, which annoys me because I'm actually quite an opinionated person, if you know what I mean. But mm. sometimes I, especially on social media, like I won't go too left, I won't go too right, I won't go too religious, I won't go too atheist, I won't get too involved in politics. I tend to stay the middle of the road with that brand that I built on social media. Because the moment I veer off, it affects ties with the council, affects ties with the authorities, affects ties with the events I'm putting on, the places I'm speaking at, the rooms I'm invited into with certain MPs to talk about current affairs, talk about how to make the town better, talk about the knife crime, talk about all this kind of stuff. They ain't, they're not going to let me in those rooms if I don't position myself in a certain place. And some of that is unauthentic. But it's unauthentic to be authentic. Mm. Like, I, 
I have to be this guy to get in the room. When I get in the room, I can voice what I want to say. I'll never get in the room if I'm not this guy. Do you understand what I mean? Yes. So I'm playing the game a little bit there, going back to what I said when I was young with the girls and the manipulation and the, and the thing. Like, I know what I'm doing. The biggest power play in the world is to act dumb. That like you don't know what's going on. That's the best power play you'll ever learn in your life. Because the, per the moment the person across from you doesn't feel like you're a threat, they show the true side of them. They show you what their real, intention, what their real intentions are, both for you and for other people. Then you gauge them. Once you gauge what they're about by them doing that, then you understand who you're dealing with. Very powerful. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of the time, you'll hear some people, like I'm a bit of a clown in places. You know, I went to the charity football match, act like I know nothing about football. I'm fun. I make everyone laugh, make everyone joke. Because then immediately they're disarmed. Mm. Because I can tell there's tension when I walk in. I don't want there to be any tension. I don't want them to be any different to me than what they would with any other team member. So I act like I'm a fucking idiot. They relax. We're all friends. I think that's thinking less from your perspective and more from theirs, isn't it? Mm. You're putting yourself in their shoes and going, well, actually... But, but I also... I want to say something because mm. my therapist that I go to, she moans about this to me, saying that a lot of what I'm doing is coming from external and it should be more internal. So this is something we've been working on this year a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Because if you think about everything I'm telling you now, everything we're speaking about is an external view of me. But who am I internally? Mm. And does it matter what that validation comes from external? It doesn't, shouldn't matter, should it? it? It shouldn't, but for good reason, the world that we live in means that, as you say, you won't be invited into certain conversations. You know, like, you have to um, place that as a higher good over your own authentic... I have a couple of friends that are very true to it, like uh, Diren, you know James Smith? Diren Cartel, you know, those guys online, they've made a fucking living out of being completely authentic. Completely true. Like you meet those guys off social media, have a night out with them, have a dinner with them, whatever. They are who you see. They speak how they speak on social media. Their views are as they are. You know, like Deering's got that bit of like London twang to his voice. I always had a little bit of that. My cousins speak like that. But depending on where I am, this podcast, who I'm sat in a room with, I put on a different accent. You know, depending who I'm sat with, like I'm like a chameleon which has been very, very good for business, but it's very confusing internally to, to, to identify yourself. Because I can sit with directors of companies in Tweed and speak like them, and I can sit with kingpins of the underworld and dress and talk like them in their slang. I can hang around with the military guys and speak in their slang. Do you understand what I mean? Mm. I can come and have a conversation with you and your, your guys here and maybe speak in your language a little bit, say mm. the right words at the right time. Yes. Good for business, bad for your nut. Has that been something you, you've you've journeyed with in, in the last, let's say, seven or eight years as you've had some big names come into Halo or when you've done I Am UK events, mm -hmm. working with even people like Tyson Fury, Yeah, I've seen on social media, and you're able to, not, not saying you hung out with them for a lot of time, but you you've come into contact with a lot of people that, people idolise, people worship, people see on the camera, and you're able to be relatable and have those conversations with them. But how much of yourself is lost in that? And I don't know, are you, 
I'll ask. I'll ask the second question in a bit because I think I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. I what I tend to do is with everyone just find one topic that I can relate to them on, mm-hmm. and just home in on that, whatever that might be. Do you know what I mean? That's what I felt has been a good way of working when I meet these people, especially those big names. You know, those guys they get made such a fuss over them. I have friends that play Premiership football that played for England and they love hanging around with me. Do you know why? Like Adam Lallana. Is Adam's one of them, yeah. yeah. Do you know why? Because I don't care for football. You don't treat him any differently from... No. So when yeah. I sit with him, I don't start asking tactics of Klopp because one, I don't understand it because I'm not into football and two, I don't, couldn't give a fuck. Like, how are you? Do you know what I mean? So, so immediately they... If they want to get out of their normal bubble, I'm the perfect person they can come to because I don't really, I care about their career and what they value, mm. but not in a sense that, do you know what I mean? Like, I also have a friend that's really into football, really supports Liverpool. When Adam used to play for Liverpool, he would send me stuff going, dog, dog, ask, ask him if he's this. And I'm like, mate, I'm not that guy. Like, I don't build these relationships on this kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. if, if, if the question comes up when we're talking, great, but I'm not going to go out of my way to message someone rubbish yeah it's not true you have to bear in mind like these people they're normal people like you and i right they're scared of the same things we're scared of they breathe the same air they bleed the same blood they're no different they have this heightened kind of celebrity status that generally happens pretty quickly they don't know how to deal with it their parents that they've always looked for for help haven't got a fucking clue what's going on because they've not lived it they find themselves surrounded by managers and agents and tour managers and these people that should have their best interests at heart but are trying to make as much money as they can because their lifespan is short. And then you have this Conor McGregor-style person that now appears to be this monster because he hasn't got anyone probably real around him. Holding him accountable. Yeah. Mm. Like genuinely real, going, mate, you're being a dick. Because they're, they're all just playing off it. You know, like when we had Floyd Mayweather, when we brought him to Paul. Wasn't probably was the, probably one of the most difficult people we've dealt with. You know, he wanted the car a certain temperature. He wanted loads of crazy like requests, and we get them all the time from the big artists. But then, as I got to spend a little bit more time with him and some of his team, Floyd actually wasn't that bad. But the three people around him were pretty bad. You know, like I wasn't. You weren't allowed to call him Floyd. You had to call him Champ, the Champ. If you called him Floyd. You weren't allowed in the room. Wow. You had to call him the Champ. You know, so like, there was these like things, but I don't know if he's aware of it. Do you understand what I mean? Mm. I don't know if he's aware of it. Like we had Craig David headline Sunfest this year. One of my all like all time idols. <laughs> Not afraid to admit it. Wow. Like, and before he came, obviously his agents are the best agents in the world. His head of security is ex special forces. His you know he's got the best team around him but they're so militant with everything. Like, they're so, there's no banter, there's no joking around. It's fucking as per contract, as this, as that. We want this, we want that. And I was honestly a bit, like, nervous to meet Craig because I thought, he's going to be a dick because he's telling them to do all this stuff. I met the geezer, I pretty much fell in love with him. Like, I promise you, my wife was there as well. Because he's so normal, so down to earth, he's actually a bit spiritual, he's like, Really, really cool dude. We had a real moment, spoke about his Born to Do album, saying how much confidence it gave me as a young man, trying to like chat up girls and stuff. And 
We had like a real funny moment in this fucking RV where she was his green room at the back of the stage. What I'm saying is I don't know how much of that shit that they're making us do for him he's aware of. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And also imagine walking down the street now and not being able to just go to the corner shop and buy milk. Like where would that wear thin? At what point would you snap as a human? We all have a point that we snap. Mm. At what point would you go enough is enough? Do you know what I mean? I mean, where do you see yourself on that line of like, obviously, big name in Bournemouth, whatever. People say on on uni, uh, if you become a big name on campus, be knock. And uh, to a small extent, like... A micro-influence. To a small extent at uni when I was in second year, because I was doing a few different things, you couldn't go anywhere without nodding someone and someone give you a nod. I don't even know who you are. Obviously, not on a very small scale, but do you find that ever in certain circles? Or is it not really Yeah, I find that, listen, we're in a small provincial town and I tend to do the highest profile of events and stuff in the area. I'm very vocal. I've got a large social media following. I comment a lot on current affairs on in, within the newspaper and within the radio. So naturally, the name it gets thrown around, right? Not that everyone has real access or knows who maybe I might be, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's a blessing and a curse because I tried really hard to be this guy. I wanted to be this guy because it all comes back from stemming from being a kid to fit in, right? I wanted to be picked at the football match. I don't want to be the last kid that's picked. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. Um, but also now, sometimes I just don't want to be that guy because I'm a fixer. Everyone rings me for everything. Everything. Whether it's my family, whether it's like you going, oh, I need two new tyres on my car. Where can I go? Because they know if I say, go to this place and ask for this person, you'll get this much money off. Do you understand what I mean? Like there's this... Yes. Yeah. And because I also love helping people, it get, does get abused. Mm. It does get abused. You, you build that reputation for yourself of being a guy that gets stuff done, is reliable, can do those things, but that's almost, it become, as you say, it becomes a blessing yeah. curse because yeah. then people depend and rely on you. And because you're relatively altruistic and you want to do good, as you mentioned at the beginning, you get stretched in every left-right um, direction and there's no room for saying no, which is something you struggle with, understandably. You, you, so you're always remembered for the one thing that you didn't do right yeah, in life. Yeah. This is the sad state of play of life. Like I could help you a hundred times and that one time that I'm at breaking point, I'm struggling with my own shit. I can barely fucking make ends meet myself and I've said no to you. I end up the worst person on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the part. Like Every now and then you've got to say no, I think, because to see who someone really is. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I want to take it into lockdown post lockdown as you've come into to recent years in terms of the particularly the work with with dorset mind and being more aware of your not that you were ever not aware but you know you've garmin we're yeah. getting into the running the challenges that you're doing in lockdown has the journey that you've been on post lockdown and through that um have you noticed real shifts in the way that you perceive life in perhaps you didn't do beforehand seeing being able to help someone the contentment you feel from that the fulfillment you feel from that is nothing i ever experienced like think of an idea now like oh we're going to do a festival on the beach and then in six months standing on that stage with your arms out and five thousand people in front of you that's a hell of a, a buzz right um but the little things of helping people that genuinely may need help, I think for me is like the definition 
of life and what it should be. And you don't always have to post about it. <laughs> like the stuff you post about this is, and I, and I have this battle with, I actually spoke to D from Dorset Mind about this. I said, D, like I'm having this battle in my head of, am I doing good, quote unquote, am I doing charity work because I'm really a good dude or I want people to think I'm a good dude? Do you understand what I mean? Am I selfishly doing it to build my own image? To be that guy? Or do I actually want to help people? Or really, do I not give a fuck? Do you know what I mean? And she was like, does it matter? She said, because the end result is a net positive. I would say it does. Does it matter? Because I think the heart is the thing that matters in this. But if you've got a good heart and you do fuck all for anyone, and I've got a bad heart, and I change the community for better. Who's the one? Do you understand what I'm trying? Like playing devil's advocate. I, I you know can have the saying. best heart in the world, but you're inward, not outward. Mm. I might have 50% good heart and 50% trying to reach a certain position, status in life. But I'm making very positive changes for people around me to get there. You're doing nothing to people around you, but you're living peacefully in your own heart. I think, and I don't want to get too much into it because I don't know too much about it. But in moral philosophy, there's there's this idea of how do you de determine something as being good? Is it is it the thing itself? Is it your posture towards the thing? Or is it the consequences of that thing being done? And you can look at either of those three options and say, oh, it's a good thing because of the consequence of it or because of the thing itself or because of the posture. And obviously you're, you're arguing that it's a consequentialist perspective. doesn't matter the motive, doesn't matter how it was done, the ends always justify the means and it doesn't matter the place that that's coming from because you can say we've saved this many people from starvation in this community by pouring the funds in but we killed some people and illegally smuggled all these drugs and you know did all these horrible things and we were evil people to get that outcome and you have to and it's an interesting dilemma because it's like well the good outcome has happened I don't want to take this conversation in a completely different direction, no, but go. we had a lot of human advancements from some of the experiments that the Nazis did on human beings because we, for very good reason, and I'm, God forbid we ever do this again, experimenting on human beings. But the Nazis did that to no end with people who are disabled, people who are outcasts, people who are poor, and we all benefit from the medical breakthroughs as a result of the things that they did. Now, obviously that's an extreme example mm -hmm. But you have to take the extreme example to, to show the logical end of the point that you're making. And so for me, when I look to that, I go, I don't think I can ever really just, no matter how good the ends are, I can't justify it with the means. And I think that's basing the means on a negative though. Yes, and you're arguing that the means could be 50% positive, 50% negative, or selfish. Or, or, or selfish more than negative. Selfish rather than... So, so you're coming yeah. so from a selfish So what I'm saying place. is I'm not necessarily doing harm to anyone. Yes, yeah, But yeah. I'm maybe getting five extra followers and 20 extra likes because I've posted about it. Mm. When I could have just done it and not posted about it. But I'm arguing that I'm posting to create awareness. So you're aware that this is going on in the world. I see. It needs some yeah. thought. Do you see what I mean? It was more from that perspective. I agree. I actually agree with you because doing the thing, but the bad thing gets you to the good thing is not doing the good thing, is it really? Because over here, you're, it's, like, mm. it's like us driving electric vehicles, but we've got a load of kids mining battery, 
mining um, cobalt. cobalt. Yeah, sorry to break everyone's, burst everyone's bubble. Yeah, yeah. Electric vehicles aren't actually more no. <laughs> sustainable than, than petrol cars. No, and, and you know, the same with these phones we're using. You know, we didn't, I didn't realize for years that these phones were mined the same way, the batteries in these phones. Mm -hmm. Only when Tesla came out and everyone started kicking off about it that you then thought back, actually. And this speaks to a really good conversation about when someone claims to be a good person. So what do you mean by good? How are you defining good? Are you really a good person? Because everything that you've done is a result of slave labor. You know, yeah. everything that we benefit from, it's like, are you a really good person? Because we like to think of ourselves as, but really when you, when you, when you go right to the root, sin but is, is any, pervasive is, everywhere. Is anyone good? No. Is any human good? Only one man was good and his name was Jesus Christ. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Seriously, like that's, that's, in, in a conversation like this, you have to go to the logical end. And I, I do believe no man's good. Every, every man has... I'm has actually a, surprised you said that. ...has a state of sin within them. That we're, we're born into sin, the Bible says. We are innately sinful. And that, that can be seen across everyone's actions. Through ill motives, through pride, through... You know, sins aren't necessarily the things that you do. It's just your entire state of being. Mm -hmm. And those things are worked out of you. Um, and those, you, you can grow in those areas through God working through you. That helps me make sense of a lot of human behavior, why we do the things we do. We're naturally selfish, we're naturally stubborn, we're naturally prideful, all these things. And it's really, it, well, it is impossible to say you're a good person because you have to say, what's the definition of good? Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't have God to define what good is, then me kicking a dog, I could just say that's good because it's subjective. Yeah, and therefore you, you you go. Oh, what's the point in life? What's the meaning? You know, you could you have that discussion. You sound um, like Dumbledore when he says, "There's light and dark in all of us. Depends which path you choose." Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the the line of good and evil runs down the center of the human heart. It's mm. it's part of us. It's part of our nature. Um, it's got super philosophical very quickly. <laughs> yeah, the good argument. I've never thought of it like that. As in, what are you defining good as? Because it's still you're still defining it in comparison to maybe, yeah. Good is a relative term. Yeah. Relative to what? To what, yeah. And if we're defining it, and there's no external definition of what that is. What about if I told you it's better than argument. it was? How are you defining better? <laughs> you're just changing the word. <laughs> <laughs> See what I mean? And this is, this is part... But it's never ending, that. It is never ending. And because, because what, what the what the Bible says is good is perfection. But yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm just, I'm just trying to point out some of the, no, I agree. you know, I the challenges when you, cause when you go to the end of the degree, the nth degree of what you're thinking, and this applies to many of the things we've, we've spoken about in terms of going back to ancient philosophy to guide your life about money and meaning and purpose. And some of the things that you've stepped into in more recent years, trying to be more reflective of, you know, cool. I've, I've chased the bag. I've got material success. I've got, somewhat a level of status and influence you know um, i've married i've got stability all these kind of things that you you think you get to that stage and then you spout the other side and you're still wondering have i just got 50 years and then mm -hmm. well i guess what i'm trying to say is like which faith you trust in or believe in or live by is it as relevant as the end product as in You've put your trust into God, right? And you believe that you're trying to live a less sinful life through his guidance, the book, 
you know, what, what, all that kind of stuff with, with Christianity. If I said to you that I'm going to live a less sinful life through Stoicism, uh, through the Stoics and the way they lived, mm -hmm. is there much difference in that? Fundamentally, yes, because Stoics are imperfect people doing imperfect things and coming up with some level of moral wisdom. But God is objective and outside of that and is perfect. Therefore, you can trust the word that he's laid down. And in sending himself, his son, as Jesus Christ, to live perfectly, to, to walk amongst us, to experience the things that we did, but also being fully man, fully God, which is something we can't comprehend. Mm -hmm. That sets a standard which is perfect, which is objective. Your good is based on that book. And my good is based on the result of people around me. So the judgment of good, you know, we were saying like good by whose standard? Yeah. Good by what? I just try and understand like sometimes with religion there's a moral high ground. Why is your good good and my good isn't? Because Absolutely. I don't believe in your God or a God. Do you mm -hmm. understand what I mean? I mean, God certainly is on a high ground. He's... <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I and, get and I, it. And I, I get would, it. I, and I would submit myself to that and say that, and I, I am, I am unworthy of God's love in my natural state. I am broken. I'm flawed. I'm sinful. That's my natural state. If I was left to my own carnal, animalistic desires, I would do unspeakable things. It would sit, like you know, if I if I lost the, that side of my brain, I just did the impulsive desires. I would be locked up for life and. You know, we all we all most of us would. we always recognise that in our head. We have those things within us that are just, and I think that is my my natural state. That is who I am, truly deep down. If I'm really honest and look in the mirror, and I and I cannot meet any sort of perfect standard. I know that I'm constantly falling short of perfection. Um, you, you know what I find interesting? Mm -hmm. We think some weird shit in our head, right? As humans, and the thing that I think is really powerful about religion and faith and whichever God you believe in is because you think or you believe that they can they're all all encompassing and they can hear and see and you know feel what you're thinking in your head you think better in a way do you understand have I made that like clear so if I even when I'm thinking some weird shit in my head and I'm not a true believer of any individual kind of faith I sort of think God, that's probably not the right thing to think. Like, if someone is up there fucking hearing my thoughts now, they're going to think this guy's a fucking nutter. Do you know what I mean? You're living by a thing where where nothing you can't, nothing you do can be hidden, right? Because the it divine sees, sees can, into the heart, as I yes, said. Yes, everything. Yeah. The heart, the mind, your thoughts, yeah. everything. So you're trying to be good in 100%. Whatever but ultimately, ultimately, I'm not trying to be good in my own works because I know that I can't. I know that I'll always fall short of the standard. Okay. Therefore, all I'm doing is just trying to just love God with everything that I do and really just delight in who he is, what he's done on the cross and died for me. He's, already, he's done the work by dying on the cross and taking on the sin that is rightfully would be mine and I should be judged for my sin rightfully. You know, a fair judge. It doesn't matter how loving the judge is. The judge has to also be a righteous just judge and against perfection my sin is flawed and i deserve 
the punishment for that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because Christ has done that, there's nothing good that I can do. He's already done it. All I have to do is trust that he's already done it, trust the things that he said about himself, die to myself, and as a result of me trusting those things and believing what he said in the Bible, naturally I'm going to do good things and the fruits of my character are going to reflect more and more Christ and Christ's behaviour because that's the standard I'm following. But I'm not doing it because I'm trying to win or attain any moral goodness because I know that I'm, already, I'm always still flawed. Mm -hmm. The only thing I've contributed towards my salvation is my sin. I can't do anything. It's quite a big distinguisher between Christianity and every other world religion is every other world religion is works-based and man running to God. Christianity is the acknowledgement that nothing we can do can, can run to God. God's done the work and we have to do is trust in that because God is perfect. It's like if you imagine an analogy of pretty much every world religion or to be honest, a lot of Christians as well and I have to be sensitive and I don't, I don't want to bad mouth yeah. anything but the state of the church in 2023 is also very progressive and very damaged, right? And, I, and that's where I've also, maybe three or four years ago, I was in that and I wasn't aware of these things. And now I've come to really understand things for what they are. And in Christianity, there's this idea that, um, say if you're drowning and you're kind of swimming on the surface of the sea um, and God reaches down his hand to save you from your drowning, um, in other religions, you can, you, you can, in your own strength, reach up your hand and grab onto that. And some Christians believe that through free will, we can also do that. I believe we're dead at the bottom of the sea. We are sinners. We are at the bottom of the sea. We can't respond to that. God does the work. And therefore, he's chosen me, and I'm grateful for that. And I'm going to, in response to the thing that he's done, live faithfully and according to the word and prayerfully. But it's an acknowledgement that nothing I can do is ever mm -hmm. is ever good enough for him because my good enough is still flawed. It's not perfect. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so to me, that's logical as well as being deeply emotionally true. So how has he chose you and not me? How do I get chosen? It's God's will. <laughs> so like it, like I would, I would. Uh, I'm curious. I'm not. I'm not being a mm, prick. As in, mm. I'm just. I'm genuinely. genuinely well, we, we we can get into theology because this is a this is a contentious point within Christianity. Ultimately, if God's sovereign, if He has perfect understanding of everything and he has has he's existing across time ultimately everything is his will mm -hmm. it can't not be he can't want something that doesn't happen if that makes sense he, like, everything is his control ultimately therefore i think ultimately he'll reveal himself to you through people through experience through word and ultimately from your perspective you're you're going to choose or not from your perspective you're you're going to go through life and get to a stage or God's going to really show up and move your heart. But ultimately, it is God that moves the heart. You can't choose to. And that's what I felt where, in my own stupidness, I would never have chosen to do what I've done in the last few months. Because I want to cling on to the identity of Zach and mm -hmm. um, living for myself and building a personal brand and gaining material success and doing all those things ultimately there's some level of altruism in there like i would like to, i would have liked to say i was a good person you know giving and serving people why but... can't they both coexist why can't you be zach build your personal brand make loads of money and still believe in god why are you giving one up to have the other i think i'm you, just curious i think you can but again because rather most than of the looking, church is flipping loaded looking from the consequential perspective mm -hmm. 
if my heart's not postured in the right place, I shouldn't be doing those things. And so if there's an element of pride in what I'm doing, I shouldn't, like, I really need to check my heart before I do it, if that makes sense. So I'm still doing the podcast. I'm still wanting to grow some sense is of that presence. not doing stuff to be more favorable to God? Are you not doing the exact thing that you said Christianity doesn't do? But you're changing, you're doing things to be more favorable to God. You're not doing the thing but you I'm, want to but do, I've acknowledged, he wants you to do. I've acknowledged that there's nothing I can do to be more favorable to mm-hmm. God, but I'm naturally going to do things which are more favorable to him because I love him. And I want to worship him. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, the yeah. chicken or egg thing. It's like the roots and then what is what the fruit that is born out of that as opposed to thinking that the fruit is going to make me better or worse in the eyes of God, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm a very rational thinker. I'm a very logical thinker. Mm-hmm. So telling me that a whale swallowed someone, spat them back out in 10 days, I can't rationalise with that. That's one of the books, right? I remember that from Sunday school. Yeah, Joan, yeah. I, th- I think there's, so, a, there's a number so, of things which, which require individual uh, study and trying to work out whether things but, but are literal or figurative faith. and faith. It's faith. But ultimately, when we come, uh, I want to make this point for anyone listening as well, when we come to debating things like the logistics of Noah's Ark, was the whole earth flooded? What was going on there? Jonah, other miracles, other things that mm. happened in maybe the Old Testament, the New Testament, whatever. None of those things matter if you don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was. So you have to go back to Jesus. You have to go back to the gospel. Because if you don't believe Jesus is the son of God and he died and he rose again and he covers our sins, there's no point in having a discussion about any of, any of the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, all, yeah. like what's the point? Because mm-hmm. if you don't believe that, why would you believe anything else? And I think actually that speaks to a lot of the cultural discussion. People can get quite heated about, I don't know, same-sex marriage, abortion, all these kind of issues that Christians stand on and it's really challenging in the world that we live in. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to engage in someone in a conversation about a contentious political issue if they don't see Jesus as Lord and Saviour in their life. Because if they don't see that, why would I expect them to think anything differently, if that makes sense? Of course, you're wasting your time, effectively. Trying to convince them of something. I'm convincing them of something which ultimately, if if they're not saved and they die in 60 years, it doesn't matter anyway. Mm. I'm after souls, not people getting a slightly better life. You sound like the devil. Oh, I don't mean I'm after souls. But you know what I mean? I, I'm what, what, I'm, what I'm looking I'm towards. Joking, no, no, I'm I know. Joking. But that's. I, I, yeah. I find it interesting because I don't label, I don't have a label of a faith myself. Mm-hmm. Like Turkey, historically or generally speaking, is Islam. There's a lot of Christians there. One of the first churches in the world is in Turkey. Um, mm. Supposedly, Noah's Ark's even there. You can go and visit this thing that's supposedly Noah's Ark. It's supposedly one in like Brands Court. Yeah, yeah, seen yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> I cycle past it all but the time. But there's quite like... a lot of Christianity within Turkey, mm-hmm. like deeply rooted in the history of it. Um, I don't really pick, I haven't really picked like a, a, a labelled faith as such, but I I believe there's something greater than us here. I, I, I struggle to believe that we just were created out of two atoms fitting together and, you know, and, and there's not something more powerful. That's something from nothing doesn't make yeah, sense to you. Yeah, I struggle with that. I talk a lot when I say stuff like when I meet my maker, whether that's internally or externally. I don't know what that is. I don't know who that maker is, male, female, black, white, Jesus, Allah, whoever it might be. But I, I, I think one day I'm going to have to answer to someone when that day comes. And the, the driver for me, for the stuff that I'm saying that I'm doing good, is that I can look that person, being, spirit, 
in the eyes and say, I was true to me. I was true to the people around me. I did everything in my power, given the decision and the, and the circumstances I had at the time to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I, I kind of live by that. And I generally think it's working for me in the last few years. Like all the options I was given at the time, any decision I make, I believe that that was the best decision with the options I was given. Not Maybe not with you, whereas you might think God would want me to do X. God would want me to do Y. I don't necessarily bring it down from there, but I bring it like, right, here's my 10 options. What's the least damaging to everyone around me? Not least damaging to me, least damaging to everyone around me. Because what's least damaging to me might fucking annihilate half the people around me. And I, I'm, I'm content with that. Ironically, there's also a little bit of a long-term strategy over what's least damaging to everyone in the long term is the least damaging to you. Whereas the, in the short term, the okay. least damaging to you, you know what I mean? It, yeah, yeah. You can still bring it back like to that. self. Yeah, yeah. Because it's preservation and status and making sure those things are still yeah, still going well and everyone's still happy and it's not going to come back to bite me in 15 years' time. Even if that's not a conscious thing that you no, think. No, no, I see. I've not thought of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the question was posed to me when I was like 15 in school by a teacher, you know, can you ever really be selfless? It's like, oh my goodness. I don't think you can. I don't think you can. No. But I think both of those can coexist. But you think there's somewhere in the middle between... Yeah, I don't, I don't think um, you have to be one or the other. I do think you can coexist with kind of... Because ultimately, you're going to do everything you can, whether you believe it or not, or your book tells you it isn't, to survive. If I come in here now to attack you with a knife, you ain't going and let me kill you. You're going to try and survive. It's deeply rooted into your DNA. Whether you choose to admit it here or not with me, you will try and survive. You mm. will try and fight back and you'll try and live in your physical form. Mm. So that's not selfless. In a way, if you know what I mean. Like I'm not I'm not Yeah. I'm just trying to think like there's certain things I feel like are deeply rooted in us, no matter what we kind of believe in. That we can't, you know, if I lock you in a box of water, you're gonna try and swim. Because your body's not going to want you to drown. If you know what I mean. There's certain things. Yeah, that you, yeah, for sure. That, that, like kind of. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I guess you're trying to take that to the logical end and be like, look, there's still things where you drop your values or principles in the case of like just your human biology to keep you alive. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Like, but that doesn't justify the the ways in which we act pridefully or selfishly day to day. I think, and I think it's still good to recognise that where those places are coming from in the heart. And really check that. Um, I might be challenging you because I'm finding it it's challenging me, right? I'm only challenging you because I'm thinking, <laughs> fucking hell, maybe I am a selfish prick. You know, like <laughs> maybe what you're saying is right. Maybe I need to I, kind of I can't lie. surrender to this. I, w- I would say I would say you are, but I'd say everyone is. Mm-hmm. And those things that I struggle with all the time, and it's my acknowledgement of that. And Mate, then... I admire it. I honestly admire it. Like I'm not. I'm not an atheist or I'm not a anti-God person. I admire it. I've got friends that are extremely peaceful, content with everything, like living this what will be, it's God's will kind of thing. And I sometimes I wish I can, I don't know what the right word is for it, surrender to it myself in a way. It is surrender. In a sense that like, but every time I get close to something like that, like the rational mind in my head, pulls me back in and goes, hang on a minute, like, you're not just going to float off into the sky wearing sandals and all that stuff. Like, there's bills to pay. Your mortgage needs paying. 
you know, that person he's feeding. That doesn't come from just... Because I'll have these moments where I want to go to a deserted island and put my shoes on and just be disconnected from the universe and uh, from technology mm. and just live peacefully, right? Like we've got this thing where it's everyone not necessary, goes... It's not necessary peace optimization, though. I'm not necessarily desiring peace. Yeah. It's just living to be more like Christ and reflecting on the ways which I don't match up to that, being convicted of that, living in a house where people are going to call you out on things where you're not matching up to the what would Jesus do, which is what you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that in Sunday school, yeah. Like it's a, it's a very simple, but ultimately have the standard that's written down over oral tradition, then written, and then believe the Holy Spirit is the thing that convicts you. Mm-hmm. It's the, what, why, do I, why do I feel that in me that that's wrong? I shouldn't be doing that. Where's that come from? It's the Holy, like the, it's convicting me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's why I would describe it to so you. Good, but... I guess someone that doesn't think like that would just they call it a moral compass, don't they? It's like where does that come from? Yeah, when you know when something feels a yeah. bit like, yeah. oh, that just feels not right. Your gut. Yeah, people people call it what they like, but I think, well, not to be flippant about that, but I think you know. I always go try and see the logical end of mm. things because I'm, I'm a logical, rational thinker as well and I don't want to come across as um, disconnected from reality in terms of thinking about things because, I, I mean, only 12 months ago, I was in Cardiff for three months for working for the government and I dealt with the biggest doubts and depression and um, I was like lying awake at, at night couldn't turn off the thoughts of like existential dread and nihilism and questioning my entire identity and being and faith. And then to like sedate that, I would just watch porn because that took my brain somewhere else. And then I'd go back to the nihilism and the, you know, the mm-hmm. people talk about post clarity or whatever. Like you just go back yeah, to yeah. that, like, oh my goodness. And then you can't sleep. And I, I was in that circle. So I, I don't want to come across as the fact that I haven't really really wrestled with some of these things from a logical perspective and i'm still that's I'm, why i'm asking you, and yeah, i'm continuing I, to do so yeah um because you're what you're someone later in life that's from my perspective of how i've met you hmm. that's why i'm curious about it yeah i always yeah. find it interesting when when if someone's born into it through their family it's one thing because they don't know any different but if you've been in that different life and then you've still chosen to come here i find that really interesting to understand yeah. like why or how or what's yeah. kind of do you know what i mean like what's I admire it, and most of it that I'm challenging is, is purely ignorance, Like, I, as in I don't understand it. I don't understand it, and some of it I might not want myself to understand. I'm not letting myself understand, because I don't want change. It, you know, it, I don't, I don't watch, I've never watched What the Health. I've never watched um, all these, I refuse to watch them. My vegan friend sends me like slaughterhouse videos, and I say to him, send that to me again, I'm going to block you. Because I don't want to watch it, because I know the empath in me is going to want to not eat that bacon because I've seen what's happening to the pig I'd rather not know do you know what I mean and carry on about my fucking life I'll be dead in 20 years anyway yeah, yeah. and I'm going to rot in, in a coffin <laughs> maybe or yeah. maybe my spirit's going to live on yeah question I want to ask which which ties into some of this religious discussion mm-hmm. and ties back to your business and I guess it can shed light on at least some of the some of the things I guess there's two questions firstly um do you think you could run a nightclub out of a mosque? No, I'd probably be stoned to death. So what do you think that says about the state of modern Christianity? I had this conversation with someone recently. 
when they said, do you not think it's disrespectful to have a nightclub in a church? I said, I'm not the one that granted the permission. So if you've got a problem, go to the powers that be that are willing to sell their soul for the money. Do you understand what I mean? Yep. Like the leaders of those worlds, of those cultures, would not even allow it to get there. It's not even something you would mention. Whereas the Western world is so money driven. So actually, fucking hell, we can sell that in auction for two million quid and that'll go into the pot of the government or the council or whoever used to own it before, the church. I don't know who, I mean, I don't really know how that kind of works. We also had a program on BBC. I don't know if you remember me sharing that. BBC did a program where they said, is Halo exploiting Christianity? I'll try and send you the link. It's quite funny. Because you do the like saints and sinners nights. Yeah, they came in. Which obviously they increasingly in, makes me uncomfortable. I'm like, oh no, what are you They came into the, the club, saw it like partying hard, mm. obviously. Then they went to the gardens and went into town and started questioning people and saying like, do you think this nightclub is, you know, exploiting Christianity? And um, some people were like, um, yeah, you know, it's can't believe they're doing that in a church so disrespectful. And some people were like, well, not really, because whoever's given them the permission is the one should be held accountable, all this kind of stuff. And then in the end, they went to a priest and um, they asked him, and he's from the church, the other side of Halo, the big one, you know, at the bottom of the hill by the town hall kind of bit, you know, that massive one there. Oh, yeah. Him. They asked him and he said he's, a, he's an old guy, like must be like 70. And he was like, he's a modern Christian, he said. And he said, as long as it's good, safe fun, he's all for it. And that was like the ending of the programme. And I remember sharing it every time, every year it comes to my Facebook memories. I share it, say, listen, we've had the blessing of God. So, <laughs> yeah. so we're cool. And what does that say about modern Christians or modern Christianity in yeah. terms of so this is, actually, principle and conviction and holding firm to the word? And here's the thing, and again, I don't want to talk too uh, flippantly about this, but I guess from your perspective as well, looking at religion mm-hmm. as a thing, you're coming from an outside perspective, you yeah. look at Muslims, you look at Christians, you look at Christians and then you look at people who are being, who are, who are saved in my perspective. And I think there's a very small percentage of people within church and within, and, and very small percentage of churches within the number of churches there are that are truly like adhering to what scripture says and being spirit led and truly having convictions and holding to these things. I think everything's being molded by the culture and you're bending on all these issues. It's like, well, you have to word, submit to the scripture. Do you not think, though, that's similar in most religions? They're forking. These are very, very old writings, right? Very old. The Bible and the Quran, these are old. And if you look at how they're being perceived and the perspective of the person reading it, and it's forking, right? Like you just said, you've got that kind of traditional Christians, you've got the modern Christians, but in Islam also, like, you've got some people that are interpreting the, the writings very differently to others, but they're reading the same thing. They're reading the same passage. How's one person interpreting it so far this way and one person this way? You have to understand who wrote it, who they wrote it for, why they got were you. writing it, and not just jump to, how can this passage apply to me today? Got you. Even though there are things, very clearly, in the ethic of the book, um, that speak well the collection of books that speak to today and those clear things but I think when you actually engage with things um, like especially on contentious topics within Christianity people have take issues but there are often we, I don't want to get too theological but there's something called exegesis and eisegesis eisegesis is like reading into the text so you're having your own 
as you say, preset biases and your own worldview that you're sort of trying to read into the text. And exegesis is just, who was the text written for? Why was it written? Who was it, who was it written by? Okay, how can we make sense of this now? What is God speaking through this thing? And too many people do eisegesis where they try and mould the Bible to fit what they believe culturally. And the, the state that we've got to is a result of many different people having no conviction or wanting to be nice people. But truly, the, the, and I don't want to get into it too much, but there's an appreciation that comes of when, when, you, when you make the correct assumption that God is good, and God is perfect and loving, and you see the bigger picture, you can understand that some of the things that can be seen as unloving or confusing in the broader picture make far more sense. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess I guess the question was was more on because I because I wanted to ask a question on on the church, the church being used as a building because it's certainly something that I mean I've I've been to Halo a number of times on nights out and now I wouldn't do that. Do you believe like, though that? I mean, church isn't. Also, isn't the building? It's a collection of believers. This, so I was, this is my next thing I was going yes. to say. Do you actually believe that any building is holy? It's, it's much greater than that, surely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They could take your, everything away from you, and you could still have that faith. Yeah. You don't need bricks and, and water. And, and I agree with that as well. There's still something question, questionable morally that I'm sure you feel as, to some level, because it's hard to completely drop meaning out of anything. Of course. Of and, course. And I guess um, one other question I wanted to ask on the back of that is with your move to health and fitness and well-being and your work with Dorset Mind and your passion for mental health and the way that your businesses and, and you as a person have grown in recent years, you're still attached to Halo as the initial big business that you've run. And I mean, my perspective is nighttime clubbing is to some extent short-term pleasure-seeking, hedonistic. I like, agree with you. Yes, people can seek celebrations for things but and i know this is asking you a difficult question you, know, you probably have your hands tied to some extent but where do you where do you find the balance of that in terms of you're at peace with the fact that you support mental well-being but also you run a nightclub where people maybe have their well-being decreased as a result of that's that. that's a battle that i fight a lot and that's one of the reasons i do all the community stuff i do Things like yin yang, like it's trying to make up for it. Yeah, because I sell poison for a living. I sell alcohol, right? And I don't drink it much myself anyway. Like I never have been mad with it. But so with one breath, I'm creating an environment that can put people in certain states that I might not fully like. And then with another side of me, I'm trying to mend that. <laughs> I'm hoping that the the good that I do here will outweigh the bad once I meet that person at the end of the line. I, I, I don't think this is true. This, the cynic in me is like, you could play this as some big money game where like, <laughs> and in fairness, to some extent, big pharmaceuticals, big processed food, they work together to generate money off making, they have an interest in keeping poor people sick and then selling them drugs. I'm obviously not saying that's no, what no, you're doing. No, no, but I don't make any money out of, what, of I haven't made any money out of the club for a year. It's fucked. For, for a start. I mean, I'll give you invest that all that money and then it was lockdown. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did like that business. The, the late night economy at the moment in the UK is ruined. Mm. Late night. So bars are okay and restaurants are okay, but they're late, late night. Like nightclubs at the moment are really struggling. Just demand is down. Uh, the, yeah, supply so massive costs behavioral change. 
in the youngsters. Mm. Massive behavioural really? change, yeah. So during lockdown, they've discovered new things. Like freshers now, when I speak to the guy, one of the heads at uni, on a Monday, when he asks the freshers how their weekend was, they used to say something along the lines of, we went here, here and here, had a bag of ketamine, got had a session, you know, was in a kitchen till 6am, all this kind of stuff, hang in. He says now, they say, went for a hike over the Purbex, had a barbecue and non-alcoholic gin. So he says that there's been a massive shift and I'm buzzing about that because I'm I'm buzzing that the younger generation don't need alcohol for pleasure and they can go out and walk on nature and get pleasure. But it's commercial suicide for me as well. So like, but I'm still, I'll sit on this podcast, I'll sit everywhere and say, you don't need alcohol to have good, you don't need alcohol to have fun. You don't need it at all in your life. You don't need to smoke. You don't need to take drugs. You don't need to. But if you do, I'm not judging you. Like, that's on you. I'm not saying that, hey, I'm saying in general. Mm -hmm. But who am I to judge you and your decisions? Like, no one. I've been judged my whole life. I'm not going to judge you. There's no judgment here. You want to confide in me in something, you confide in me, whether that's good, bad, or ugly. If you want my advice, I'll give you my advice. If you don't, I'll just listen, because that's a good friend. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm not... I'm not um, Sometimes I feel with the, with, the, with the religion and non-religion thing as well, as I said to you, there's like this kind of... The high ground. Yeah, it's like, you're doing this, this and this. That's cool, bro. Like, I'm doing this. You do you, I'm doing me. Like, I'm not interfering with your life. I'm not creating any badness around you, if you know what I mean. If you ring me for anything, I'd be there for you tomorrow, regardless of our, our difference in views or not in views, if you know what I mean. But to some extent, that's because we don't want to be held accountable for something and we want to be able to live the different thing and you don't judge me so long as you don't i don't won't judge you so long as you do you won't judge me maybe. and that kind of thing but maybe yeah, yeah. And, and but i do but i do want to pick up on just the, the the point of the church is that and 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 you having this philanthropist element of you in wanting to do good and yeah. uh hold people's well-being to a high degree and also being involved with with the club is you could also ask the question, and I guess I'm just making the defence for you, but it's you'd ask the question, well, if you were to just pack up shop tomorrow, someone else is going to come in and replace that. Therefore, you just want to do that. Now that that's a thing, you can't change it. I don't want to liken this to something else, but in my head, this is how I see the Second Amendment in America. Mm -hmm. It's like, sure, you can, you can guns are everywhere. You can't have a recall. People are very attached to the guns. So let's work with it and do it the best that we can. And I yeah. think now the club is there, you have a responsibility as someone who also cares about this stuff, just to do it really well, make sure the bouncers are well. Let well, me flip it in a different way. Stuff. If that nightclub is open or shut, do you think alcohol sales are going to drop in the UK? you think drug well, sales are going to drop? I don't think they will. I personally believe, and we noticed this in lockdown when they closed all the nightclubs down, nightclubs provide they're so overlooked nightclubs provide a layer of security and safety in a town center in every town center because we have 10 sia doorman at our place so does the moon in the square so does barso so does 60 million postcard so when you're walking through the garden with your friend here and two young lads in the gardens pull a knife out on you who's there to help you so the police aren't we are we're going to run over detain them take the knife, even though we have no legal obligation to, just because it's a duty of care. Mm. When you get rid of all of us, people are still drinking on the street, they're still taking drugs, they're still smoking, and guess what? The police are under resource, there's no police. 
and there's no layer of security anymore. It's the fucking wild, wild west. Trust me. You remember during lockdown when all that stuff on the beach, all the parties on the beach, people coming down from London, it's just carnage because none of those bars are open. Like we don't have, we have radio system. We can radio the police control room direct, 501 radio system, and say there's something here. And even if the police don't come, they change the cameras. I think some things in theory would be nice without or if we could change it. But unless there's a global or national instant change at once, you don't make the change enough, if you know what I mean. Like it needs to every... come from the heart of the people that are doing the behaviour because ultimately if they still want to do the thing, they're going to the find thing. a way of doing it through They'll black markets and yes. 1920s prohibition proved that with speakeasies yep. and moonshine, right? It's just, just so this, this, is, this is the thing, right? Yeah. So yeah. if someone said to me tomorrow, right, Ty, every single nightclub is going to shut at midnight New Year's Eve this year and they're never going to reopen. Mm. Sound. I'm cool with that. Do you know why? Because it's fair. Not unjust. Every bar, every nightclub, everywhere serving alcohol is going to close, never reopen. Sweet. But if I'm going to close and no one else is going to close, that ain't happening. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that not happening because that's not fair. I've spent my life building something. And the other thing you've got to think about is that thing that is a sin is a vehicle for me to be able to do this. If that isn't around, I don't have the time or the resources or the money to do all of this stuff that I'm doing. All the stuff that I do that costs thousands of pounds, who pays for that? These guys. Not the podcast. Not the fucking podcast. That cost me thousands. No, that's what I mean. That's what I mean, like to be able to do the podcast. Yes. No, the podcast, the, the charity fundraisers, spending all weekend doing two different fundraisers this weekend. I spent all weekend, I wasn't with my family, I was with no one, just doing two fundraisers. I'm broken today, I can barely walk from doing them, but I wouldn't be able to do them if I didn't have this income here. Mm-hmm. That just ticks. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, like, yeah, there, there could be better things I could be doing than selling alcohol. But you're right, if I don't, someone else is going to. That was a club before me, that'd be a club after me. It's the hand that life has dealt you and you're just stewarding it in the best responsible way that you can. I've got, as I said earlier, I've got, all these, I've got these choices in front of me. Mm-hmm. I think, I wholeheartedly believe that I'm making the best decision at the time that I make it. Hindsight's a beautiful thing. In a month's time, I might be like, fuck, I should have gone left, not right. But I still believe that that was the right decision at the time. I wasn't the one that made the decision. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer making the decisions like I did when I was 25, where they were out and out, like me, me, me. Out and out. Oh, mate, if we do that, he'll fuck up and we can buy that club off him. Like those kind of decisions. You know, if we, if that shoot at night, send someone in with those stink bombs because it'll empty them out and they'll have to come to us. Like they're, they're, that's not morally good. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But now, me saying to the team, stop concentrating on what everyone else is doing. Let's just do what we do really well. And we'll win long term anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? What's on the horizon? Uh, we just launched that King's Park Festival. Over there. <laughs> over there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder where you're pointing at, though. Yeah, over here, yeah, yeah, yeah. Been trying to do that for six, seven years. Um, yeah, a little few bits like that, mate. I, I'll be honest, I had a little wobble about maybe moving out of the UK this year. I've done a little bit more in Dubai this year. Um, and it's still on the cards a little bit, but this is my home. I grew up here. Everything I have is, do you know what I mean? This feels like home. 
people are my home, like that mm. everything's my home. It's getting very, very, very tough to earn money in the UK. Very, very tough. You're taxed unbelievably. And don't get me wrong, I don't mind. Tax for me is a privilege. If you're paying tax, it's a privilege because it means you're earning well. Tax is a privilege. I see that as a positive. But when the quality of life doesn't equate to the taxation, it feels a bit unjust. You're not, well, you're not getting it back in terms of yeah. potholes being filled yeah, up and like, social provision. You know, like, and... you know, paying whatever, 20% VAT, 25% corporation tax, 42% personal tax, can't wear my watch on the street, it gets robbed. You know, there's homeless everywhere. The public realm is dirty. There's potholes everywhere. Like, and these are first world problems, don't get me wrong. Like, we're not being bombed and none of us are starving. And, you know, so, but I have to have, it's got to be relative to my surroundings, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. So a bit of a wobble like that, but. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Long term, I guess the goal is to be a dad. I'd like to bring kids to the, to the earth one day. That's always been, that's been a goal of mine from a little, mm. from a personal perspective. That's what I kind of want to do. Then want to kind of grow the podcast a bit more, concentrate on that. Really, really enjoy that. Makes me no money. It costs me money, but it's like a therapy session. Mm. I just enjoy doing it. Mm. Nothing, mate. Just from an inward perspective, places you'd like to grow in that you recognise you you need growth in. I think we need growth everywhere. Always. I don't think you ever stop growing. If you stop growing, you start dying. There's lots, mate. There's lots. There's lots <laughs> yeah. I could be a. There's yeah. loads I can do to still be a better person, a better son, a better husband, a better everything. Do you know what I mean? Better boss, better whatever. There's loads. There's loads of work to be done. And if anything, when I think of it like that, I get anxious. I get anxious that there's probably more work to be done than there is time. Because the amount of work that is to be done is infinite to some ending. extent, because you can never be perfect. Yeah. I, I, you can't. Mm. Nothing can be. I, I genuinely believe that. I don't think you need faith to, to recognize that. Mm. No, for sure. Do you know sure. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You, you know, and there's all that. There's the old quote: um, "Practice makes perfect," but it, it's practice makes progress. Like we're led to believe it's perfect, but you know there is no perfect. There is no. Keep doing me. I can finish the podcast by saying, apart from Jesus Christ. <laughs> and we can agree, and we can shake hands on that. Mate, listen, I respect you. I respect yeah. your views. I don't, I don't, I have nothing like that, mate. I'm not, I'm not that dude. It's going to be a... And I understand, yeah. I understand it to an extent. Mm-hmm. I understand it to an extent. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious more than anything. That's what drives me. It's curiosity with everything, with why I've interviewed you today. And a, and a, as a 23-year-old, I'm curious. Because I always find like people that are deeply rooted in religion are Generally, our elders, right? It's very hard to find young people that are mm. real, like, um, believing in faith, like, giving it their all, which is why I find it interesting. I really enjoy talking to you. I'm trying to. <laughs> no, I like it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, cool. You're good at it, mate. I think you're, because you're, you're academically quite intelligent as well, right? As in, you're good at studying and learning. It's and insane. Huh? Like slightly autistic in that way. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell. No, no, we've You can tell. I think you absorb information very well. I can see that in you. Yeah, yeah. I could see that in some of your clips you used to put up when no one up when you first started podcasting. You're putting your, you know, your own bits up. I was thinking, fucking hell, you're being bulldozed because it's like I ain't got that about me. Most of the thing I'm, I'm winging or I'm recycling that I've heard somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Or I've learned. That's ultimately what I'm, I'm doing as well. But it just 
I've repackaged it in, in a way. I'm still absorbing it. Appreciate that. No, you are, mate. I really appreciate that. Very, very good. Sorry it's taking so long, bro. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm glad it got to this stage because we did it in person. It wouldn't have been in person if I wasn't here. No, I agree. Exact